Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 44 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. From Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Bisher and joining me as always is Grant McCarran. G'day, mate. Hey, how you going, mate? Not too bad. I feel a bit robbed, mate. We've gone on to uh, Daylight Savings and uh, it's been a few days and I'm still wondering when, I'll, get, when uh, I'll ever get that hour back. Oh, well, you know, spring forward, fall back. You might get it back at the end of Daylight Savings, mate. Ugh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, why do they take the time of the year where the days are the longest and make them longer? You know, they should make Daylight Savings savings in winter that's my theory <laughs> yeah but this it'll just make it darker then because there's not as much light during the day <laughs> well, i don't know well, it all, well, it all fades the curtains now young man it all fades the curtains uh, too much science and joining us also tonight now we haven't uh, had him on the show for a while and we welcome back baz sheffers from adelaide g'day baz where have you been g'day i've been uh, i've been busy uh, you know the, you know that they don't actually make the days longer they just shift them. Yes, I, I understand this, but, you know, okay. I, I could live with a few more hours of darkness in the morning in winter uh, <laughs> and just have a bit more, you know, a bit more daylight in the afternoon. Yeah, I don't really get get it either uh, why it's so important to uh, shift that, uh, that extra hour. Well, it all came about so that those of us who work in the uh, mornings and early afternoons can then knock off early, go down to the airport and squeeze another hour of flying in before it's, uh, you know, last light. Oh, okay, That's it all true. makes more sense now. Yeah, yeah. And then our local Premier, Mike Rand, is really proud of the fact that he's moved the chains of the daylight savings to, uh, I think it's in line with most of Australia now, which is good. Unfortunately, most of Australia is out of uh, whack with the rest of the world. Yeah, well, you know, we, we, just because we do things differently here, I mean, that's what Cassock keeps saying. That's why nothing in the, in, a, in the rest of the world is allowed to be applied to the air, airspace rules down here, because we're different. Yeah, that must be it. Well, coming up in this show, folks, we've got a pretty packed program as always. Uh, we've got a, the first of four interviews we've done that are uh, end of season Red Bull Air Race wraps for 2010. Uh, this week, we're going to be uh, speaking with Hannes Ark or Hannes Arch. We haven't decided uh, how to pronounce his name, but we'll go with Ark because that's what everyone seems to call him at the air shows. We're going to have a bit of a uh, discussion with uh, David Vanderhoof about uh, the FA18F Plus that's uh, recently rolled off the uh, production line in uh, St. Louis. And uh, David's also been good enough to record an interview for us with an fa 18 F pilot over there in uh, at an air show he went to recently in the States. Uh, really good. Uh, Anthony Simmons is back with another uh, view from the lounge and uh, Controller's Corner. Controller's Corner number two. So Turb, I know you've been sending in a lot of questions to Ben to answer f- uh, on the uh, subject of air traffic control and a few others as well. So uh, that's coming up in this episode as well. Uh, I've also got some shout outs, a couple of new aviation podcasts that we've come across that were really good and we really want to talk about and some listener mail and lots more. So gentlemen, let's kick it off. So uh, Bez, we'll start with having a bit of a chat about the RAI scene. Now, uh, for those of you who uh, may be new listeners to the show um, and haven't heard Baz before, he is an RAOS pilot. He owns a uh, an Evector Sports Star. And uh, Baz, you fly that out of Parafield over in Adelaide. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, we thought what we'd do is have a bit of a chat, seeing as you're probably more recent. Well, in fact, you're definitely more uh, up to date with it than we are. And that is the uh, the recent changes to uh, Class D airspace. Um, how, how have you found that transition? Uh, easy. There's virtually no change. There's just uh, a few extra calls. So it can be 
can get a bit crowded on the ground frequency uh, for getting clearances. Uh, other than that, there's uh, there's no real change. And one of the main reasons for that is that, of course, uh, the uh, the approach points, which were uh, mandatory and uh, during the gap years, uh, now aren't. But with Barrowfield, you're squeezed in between controlled uh uh, airspace of class C airspace and uh, there's really only two uh, class G points where you can get in anyway so there's not a there's not a real change for us no one's really complaining about it except for uh, some of the uh, sometimes it's taking longer to get clearance okay and um, what's the traffic I mean what's the traffic volume like at Parafield is it reasonably busy I assume like Moorabbin and um, and Jandicott and places like that there'd be a lot of training aircraft in the pattern most of the time uh, there would be it's it's a bit different from from my experience because I obviously usually show up on uh, weekends and it it does get a lot busier during the week and that's where uh, most of the people uh, that I hear complaining about it you know they're, they're all flying during the week uh, it's it's annoying to have to wait just to get a, a taxi clearance when you can see that the taxiway ahead of you is uh, completely clear there's no conflict whatsoever but uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't slow you down that much do you have sort of an overall sense of, of perhaps now that there's more controllers in the tower for instance? And even like you're saying there, they've got, you know, the surface movement controls, the ground controllers are back, which they'd been gone for quite some time. Is there an overall feeling amongst the pilots, you know, that it's a safer environment now? Is that the general feeling you you sort of sense? No, actually, it doesn't. Uh, Definitely not for me. When you're in the air, really nothing has changed. There are some, you know, procedures that are now written down that were already uh, assumed anyway. We don't have the the traffic volumes that you can get at uh, Morebin where people... uh, have been told to hold or, or wait uh, over the approach points. Uh, we've never really had that problem anyway. So the new rule that you have to have per, uh, clearance to actually enter the zone is uh, yeah, it didn't change anything for us really. The, only, the real change in flying is that when you're in the zone or about to en- enter the zone, they want you to squawk 3,000 instead of uh, the normal 1,200 for VFR flights. And uh, other than that, uh, there's uh, there's not much different. Uh, there's there's a regular call from uh, um, Adelaide Approach, uh, you know, aircraft uh, fly. Flying uh, over Mount Barker, uh, 3,000 feet, uh, or well, it shouldn't be 3,000 feet because there should be controlled airspace there, but 2,500 feet, please squawk uh, 1200 because uh, everyone, of course, forgets to change their transponder because <laughs> it's uh, such a Oops. silly thing. I, no one's ever been able to explain to us what the point is of having it, you know, squawk 3,000 in there. But I, I, think, I think that's to um, indicate that you're under the control of the Class D folks that you have actually spoken to them and they've told you to do it. Yeah, no, that's, that's not even the case. You just... As, uh, they don't tell you to do it. It's just something that you're supposed to do when you when you get to there. How odd. Yeah, because technically, of course, Class D is not a radar environment. The, the guys have a screen, so they see the same uh, as, as Adelaide Approach. They don't, obviously don't have their own uh, radar installation, but they just get a, get a feed. Yeah. Uh, they can see you, they can see your altitude, and they can see who's walking, but they don't uh, tell you to do anything with your uh, transponder. So if it's something that it's expected to be done, I guess, obviously, in, in the you know, I mean, the whole reason that they've done this is to try and improve safety. So I, I guess if, if you're in that control zone, whether you've announced yourself or not, you know, I, I suppose that's some way at least that they can work out perhaps who you are and what your intentions might be. Yeah, I think some of the uh, the hope is to get more uh, safety because there, there were some runway incursion problems over the years, uh, which guess has been pretty big on. And I think mm-hmm. just requiring that extra clearance on the ground just keeps people alert to the to the fact that, you know, they, they shouldn't just be uh, texting around and yeah. make sure they get that clearance and uh, they, they know what, uh, what they're doing. Well, it's, it's a big thing here at Moorabbin where um, you can't even really start up at times because you used to have, at one point, you had to have your uh, time in the circuit scheduled, things like that. 
Yeah. Um, I haven't actually checked with the guys if you still need to do a uh, startup clearance, but um, because they were having to hold people and say, no, you can't go into the circuit for a while, it was you just sit there with the hobs ticking over, you know. Yeah, it's it's not an issue at Parafield as far as I'm aware. Um, it does say now on the 80s, it says uh, usually says startup clearance required for, uh, start, or startup approval required for all operations, but uh, yeah. mostly by the time you listen to the 80s, you've already started up and you just uh, ask for uh, a taxi. And if they give you a taxi, well, they've implied you can start up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not many people turn on the uh, turn on the radios and tune the ATIS without the engine already turning, do they? Exactly. It's uh, it's be it's uh, later on the checklist that you uh, turn those on. It's a bit silly to you know turn your master on, uh, turn your radio on, listen to the ATIS, turn everything back on again, and then start the checklist from the top. Well, once you fire the battery up, the flight switch is ticking anyway, so you might as well get the motor running and uh, at least get some airflow across that engine. Yeah, exactly. So it's really, I mean, you know, I started flying back in 1990, and I mean, back then they had ground controllers at Moorabbin and you know you, although you didn't have to request a start or depending on what you were doing I guess but um, yeah you, you could at least taxi to the run up bay before you could you know really had to make an announcement to the tower of uh, you know where you were going and what you were doing and what runway you'd prefer but uh, I haven't actually flown out of Moorabbin since they changed or brought these changes in so I don't know I haven't had any experience of, of the Class D myself although a few of the pilots that I know that fly in and out of there they're sort of the same opinion as you Baz it's sort of just a little bit more to think about but uh, overall not much change. Yeah one big change that happened around Adelaide at the same time in the form of a NOTAM, which is uh, an amendment to URSA, is that uh, uh, the request to not plan uh, to fly through the Adelaide control zone anymore, uh, and only do it if there's no alternate route available, uh, which you know, a lot of people, including myself, uh, aren't too happy about. Supposedly, that's for volume of traffic and, and uh, backlogs, and but you know it's it's annoying uh, because you know, the airspace, uh, as far as I'm concerned, belongs to everyone. You know, it's a, it's our own uh, national park, and the uh, the airlines are uh, slicing, uh, well, claiming it for themselves, uh, so they can make money, and you're kicking everyone out, which is uh, not the way it should be done. Um, that said, uh, you know, we've been talking about this two air services, and uh, the funny thing happened is that yeah, we didn't really mean uh, it the way it's written in the NOTAM. What we want you to do is to be able to uh, when you when you're not cleared in the zone, uh, that you know what your alternate route is to stay out of it, because now we have a lot of uh, violations of controlled airspace from people that were denied clearances and uh, don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> um, and so just just file a, a plan that keeps you outside controlled airspace and on the remarks say that you're requesting city or requesting coastal. So I've tried that. The first time that worked really well. The second and third time, they were a bit confused because, uh, you know, I, I call clearance and they're like, well, you haven't filed the plan. Well, yeah, yeah that's what uh, your guys told me uh, how we should do it. It's also that uh, the times I fly, you know, especially Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning are the, the lowest times for uh, airlines to come into Adelaide. And it's, uh, it's, it's not that hard to get a clearance still. Uh, a lot of people do it. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a shame because, uh, you know, when they're on runway two, three heading towards the, the sea and you want to go coastal at 500, if there's someone on final, you can't cross that. Um, which yeah. is a bit strange because, you know, once uh, a 737 or an A320 hits the minimum decision altitude and goes around, I think that by the time they're offshore ab- above you, they'll be quite well above your 500 <laughs> feet. Yeah, uh, well, they do, I guess they do have to have the contingency in case they do a go-round on a single engine and aren't climbing real well or something, <laughs> you know, that worst case. And then yeah, exactly. Crossing well, you by 500 and getting weight turbulence, you know. Oh, that, that, that's that worst case, mate. you gotta, you got to plan for all those worst cases. 
<laughs> yeah, that's it's a bit of a shame because you, you don't get that kind of thing uh, uh, when you hear about people flying uh, around the US. You know, that's kind of thing is never a problem in yeah. the remote case that that thing happens and well we'll deal with it they, yeah. could, they uh, could easily block out a section of airspace I, I guess if that did happen but uh, yeah or if it happens at the at the last minute the last minute go around just you know tell that uh, that well if, the, if they've got normal climb power to be above it anyway yeah exactly. pretty the controllers will see that immediately and if if it's not going to happen then uh well let the uh, let the ga fly that 500 or 1000 foot you know descend a bit more uh but, i mean it's it's one of those one in a million years uh situations but the way a lot of them think is well we've got to we've got to have contingency for that not a oh the controller will tell you to do a immediate 360 due wake turbulence you know it's it's more oh we're just going to make sure it'll never happen yeah and it's a shame there's nothing against the actual controllers are there you know they're they're not the ones making these policy decisions uh they just uh, you know following the rules as they've been laid out uh so you know feel a bit sorry for them uh, at times as well sometimes you can hear it in their voice and not giving you clearance and yeah they're uh that you can hear that they, they would have loved to do it but uh they, they can't and uh though we had a good one the uh, the other day coming back uh coastal I, w- I was told that i was going to have to hold at brighton jetty which is just south of uh that that runway to wait for a heavy to take off and uh by the time i got there uh, they'd actually put me on the adelaide tower for some reason probably to make it a, a bit uh smoother uh the the scheduling between me passing through there and uh the heavy taking off and uh so i got to a brighton jetty and the uh, uh controller goes uh cancel uh hold uh, proceed uh northbound uh offshore and the moment I, I read that back, the uh, cafe comes on and, uh, and calls uh, ready runway two, three. And of course, he gets all to uh, line up and wait because you snooze, you lose. Yeah. And <laughs> you're, obviously- you're stooging across the front there, coastal at 500 going, I've got the power. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was lucky. I had a good tailwind up my bum. So by the time he was <laughs> actually lined uh, by the time he was actually lined up, it was probably about a 30 second wait for him. So it wasn't that bad, but it's uh, you know, sometimes they, uh, they do yeah. uh, give us because the controller could have easily still said, because I was still at Brighton Jetty, he could have easily told me to uh, keep holding anyway. Just keep circling till this guy arrives, but you know you don't know when he's he, he could get partway down and something could go wrong as well. And it's that whole what if scenario. Yep. Well, yeah. you know, air traffic control is like a box of chocolates. You oh, never no. know what you're going to get. Thank you, Forrest. <laughs> yeah, but Grant and I were recently at a, a pilot night that uh, gets held occasionally by the air traffic control people at Melbourne. Uh, it was a really fascinating night there. And they actually spent about the first hour there just sitting, doing a round table with a couple of the controllers and getting to, you know, discuss different issues and, you know, maybe to get pilots and controllers to understand where each other's uh, coming from at times. Uh, one of the things they mentioned there that doesn't get utilised all that often apparently is the radar information service. Uh, do you make much use of that over there at uh, in Adelaide, Bez? Not much. I mean, I know um, that they're there. I know there's a lot of pilots, especially uh, RA, probably more so than even GA, that just never talk to air traffic control in their, when they're in class G or anything and they want to find out uh, what's going on. Uh, I do. I mean, if I'm on a long flight, for instance, uh, last year flying from uh, Broken Hill to Arachnabil, which is near very near Horsham. It's a three-hour flight. You know, a lot can change. Uh, I wanted to know what was, uh, you know, what to expect when I got there. So I just called them up and asked them for the the latest uh, meter for uh, Horsham. Uh, you know, that kind of service is available, and I use it. And I think uh, a lot of people should use it a lot more. Yeah, well, that's that's like the Americans talk about flight following and things like that. Uh, yeah, flight following has been uh, you know effectively discontinued here. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame, but to be honest, uh, most of the altitudes uh, and places uh, where where I would want it they don't really have radar coverage anyway 
Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the major differences in the the United States. Of course, they've got extensive radar coverage. And I know when I was flying there, I made extensive use of radar flight following pretty much as soon as you got off the ground. You could ask for it. It's good for you because, you know, they can uh, let you know what's going on. And it's good for them because they know what you're doing. You know, you can tell them who you are, what you are, and where you're going. And it's just that one extra layer of safety that's built in. It's a shame. It's a shame. If it were easy here and it were, uh, uh, you know, not because of budget cuts discontinued, I would definitely use it. Well, they say that's. That's ADSB will solve that, won't it? Uh, y- yeah, no. <laughs> there's a. Uh, it's proudly claimed that Australia is the first country with full ADSB coverage above yes, thirty thousand feet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it's going to give us nothing. That's a discussion for another day, and and we will have this discussion because it's it's very interesting. But yeah, it, it's not going to give us uh, GA pilots flying outside of a metropolitan area much uh, much extra. Just a, just a huge cost uh, to uh, install yeah. it if if required. One would hope that at the very least it could be described as best as a a good start, and let's hope they uh, they extend it in years to come. Yeah, as I, w- I wouldn't mind if if they you know if they chose a a system that was reasonably affordable. You know, I I would is money I would spend if I actually got that extra uh, set of eyes looking after me when I'm uh, flying in the outback. Yeah. Uh, if I don't have that advantage, then there's no real point in me spending that money. It just uh, it never gets used. No one would use it because uh, you're not going to run into an uh, an airliner uh, at those altitudes, uh, at those locations uh, either. And the, the the one that you are likely to run into probably doesn't have the transponder or the equipment turned on or even installed. It's the it's this is part of the the fun is you, you're quite often preaching to the converted, as they say. You're, you're talking safety, you're talking concepts. You've got everyone squawking, everything's going on, and then there's some idiot who's just flying in from out bush because hey, that's the way he's always done it, and no. I don't need any of that stuff. Yep. And they don't show up anywhere. Yeah, well, to you know, be fair, I mean, that, that could just as easily happen if ADSB was in. I mean, you, you, you know, there's, there's, there's no accounting for people that have that mindset. Um, it yeah. doesn't really matter what level of safety you try and impose on them. If they've got that mindset, they're probably going to keep it, unfortunately. Yep. yep. Well, the, the, the other side of the whole, as they call it in the States, the next-gen picture, but this whole new technology construction and all this kind of stuff is – that um, that they're selling the they did the che- the tests in the US with capstone they called it where in um, Alaska it, it reduced the number of incidents and also and um, lost aircraft all this kind of stuff um, what they're selling is the full integration with a GPS display and a um, traffic advisory and the whole glass cockpit thing and and the two things that come out of that is one well just having that GPS moving map and most of the aircraft in Alaska made it a lot easier for them to know exactly where they were when they were scud running and so that saved a lot of problems and and save people. And the other bit is that they're talking, they're selling that that picture. I've been hearing a lot there and here in Australia, a lot of people selling that picture of the, the glass screen and showing you everything. And yet the reality is what they're talking about installing or subsidizing is are, is um, ADSB out. So just making sure your aircraft is is pinging but no way of displaying it or things like that. So So they're selling this great picture, but the implementation may be a lot lower. For the, well, the low and that's one of the problems. I mean, there is a, a low end system that uh, that works really well and is is quite affordable, which is the the, the UAT uh, system. And you know, you, you can get a, a thirty five hundred dollar US transponder, and you can use your five hundred uh, or eight hundred dollar Garmin to display it. But unfortunately, that's not the system that uh, Australia is is going for. And improving safety using that uh, in in busy environments, both the aircraft and the helicopter involved in the Hudson midair last year, they both had ADSB and they both had uh, traffic information. And because it was too busy, they just, every, they just saw it as nuisance and uh, yeah. ignored it. Yeah, there was just too much going on, and that crowd 
crowded airspace. Yeah. Not, so in not the crowded airspace, yep. in crowded airspace, it's seen as a nuisance and everyone ignores it. In non-crowded airspace, mid-airs are just not a problem. Although these days they're finding that with uh, more and more aircraft using GPSs to fly uh, direct and or flying, flying airways via GPS, they're a lot more accurate and they're passing right over the point instead of being slightly left or slightly right and things like that. So there's actually more chance when you're out stooging along in, in an airway that you might actually go head to head with someone if they're not so much on the altitudes, but as they're um, they're cruising around themselves. Yeah, no, true. Well, I think we should have a, a probably a, almost an entire episode we can uh, fill with uh, with this at some point. <laughs> uh, I've got some some interesting people in mind that uh, have a have a good opinion uh, on this, so we should definitely do that in uh, in future. Yeah, we will touch on that as time goes on. Baz, um, the RAOs scene now. It's been a while since we've talked about RAOs. In fact, probably the last time we spoke to you was the last time because uh, it's not really a field we move in as much as we'd like to. Um, what's been some interesting things that's been happening there on the RA side of things? Well, RAOs is still the uh, the only growing part of general aviation. Uh, in that regard, it's gone really well. Um, there's uh, lots of pilots being trained. There's uh, lots of aircraft being sold and, and bought and a uh, lot more people flying. Um, so growth-wise, you know, it, it's great. And uh, of course, it's uh, mostly going at the expense right now of especially older GA pilots that just don't see the point in spending that much money when all they want to do is uh, take take one mate up in a, in a small aircraft and uh, outside control airspace. And of course, uh, the unfortunate bit is that we don't really get enough young people coming in, uh, which was uh, was the hope uh, that more uh, new people would come to aviation. That they are doing it, I mean myself included. Uh, but it's not as uh, as big uh, there yet as uh, as everyone as everyone would like. Well, I know RAOs are doing a lot of uh, reaching out to the to the younger market and uh, working with kids to get them introduced to aviation at an early age. Um, I think most of us here can all attest to the fact that if you're introduced to aviation at an early age, it's all downhill from there. Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, seeing that with my son, it happened to me, and well, you know, I guess it'll happen to others as well. So good on RAOs for for getting out there. Yeah, and doing I think some though of it. it's uh, it's although RAOs is is uh, doing some of that, m- most of it is being done, you know, just by organising flying days by local clubs with a lot of RA uh, members um, and, and they're doing really all the legwork uh, when it comes to that. It's it's one of the things that I'm uh, a bit uh, peeved about with uh, with RAOs is that you know, one of their uh, goals uh, set out in the in the charter is to uh, to uh, promote aviation and unfortunately, which is probably has a lot to do with budgetary constraints as well they're not doing as much of this as, as I'd like. Um, it's that's a, that's a really hard subject uh, because uh, uh, you know, how, how do you do that on a uh, limited budget well it's yeah. a limited budget and I, I guess I guess too it's, it's a matter of being able to um, you know if they're working at a, at a political level they have to have uh, a certain you know probably a certain size in membership and stuff that they need to work towards before they could be seen as a serious lobby group to bring in any sort of regulatory change I guess that would be a challenge for them as well uh, it definitely is I mean uh, the changes that were coming and that were, were very close until uh, John McCormick took over the reins at CASA uh, they've really been put on the back burner uh, even the the very simple ones that uh, I, I can understand in a way how the uh, controlled airspace and endor- endorsement got shelved I, I don't uh, agree with it but I, I can understand it but uh, just pushing through the changes that will allow us to do a bit more over water flying uh, that will allow us to fly uh, to 10,000 feet instead of 5,000 uh, that's not really 
a safety issue at all. There's plenty of people already flying there. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's not going to be a problem. And all those things are just going very, very slow, if, if not stalled completely. I guess when they're, uh, you know, they're trying to work their way through the halls of uh, Parliament House and there in Canberra, nothing ever is going to happen quickly. Uh, and even, no. with, even with CASA, although I'm just looking here, Baz, on their website and some of their press releases, they've uh, just recently had their AGM. Uh, and uh, one of the central themes that they're talking about here is trying to, and I'm just quoting here, talking about uh, fostering the positive ongoing relationship with CASA and going on a bit further down and talking about striking a balance between over-regulation uh, and the freedom to aviate while maintaining strong communication channels with the membership. So I guess that's what you're talking about there, you know, trying to strike a balance where you don't want it to be under-regulated, but you don't want it to be stifled in, in, in many ways. That's what's happened to general aviation. And it's yes. one of the reasons it's so expensive and, and it's it's sort of dying a bit, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's a bit of a trade-off. I mean, if we don't ask for all these things and just keep going, uh, it seems it will seem like everything is great with little um, little in the way of doing our flying, except you know for the, the limitation in which we fly. But the moment we try to expand that, uh, you're you're running up against all these obstacles. And and one of the downsides is that more regulation can come come to that. And one of the political problems, of course, that you know, GA in this country has, or aviation in this country has, is uh, our favorite uh, aviation uh, or transport minister uh, uh, who just doesn't have any interest in GA and uh, probably has a conflict of interest with uh, just you know, where his constituency is in, uh, in Sydney. Just off the runway and under the fly path. Yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> you know go, go, going to him and uh, coming, uh, and he's got a big portfolio. It's not just aviation; he's got a big That's portfolio. That's a big part of the problem. He's That's got a, a big part of the problem. problem. Yeah. So even if you get time to talk to him, I mean, the the, the voters or his his opposition in his constituency would would really uh, jump on the fact if if he made something positive to uh, allow more aviation. We were pretty hopeful that we were going to get him on before the election, but uh, that, we probably left our run a little bit late there. But uh, yeah, they were yeah, pretty we, flat out. At we, the we're time. still hopeful that uh, he will be able to make some time to come on and have a chat with us about these issues because uh, you know, in fact, I could even see a, a time where GA will get to the point where perhaps it could be even absorbed by RA and brought in under that banner, and then maybe the RA uh, regulatory framework could be expanded a bit to encompass the whole lot. And, and well, one, I of, think one so. of the things I think, I'm thinking uh, about, I see, because really, what what we're doing, we're not doing much different from private GA pilots. I mean, if they yeah. just move uh, private personal aviation under one organization and one rule set and have a different one for commercial and, and air work, uh, it would make a lot more sense than having these two things. I mean, there's, there's a stupidity that uh, what's legal in one aircraft because it's VH registered <laughs> is illegal the moment it's RA registered. And vice versa. You can, yeah. you can get away with things in RA with the exact same airframe, like a Jabiru, for example. Uh, but because, you're, because it's not VH registered, you can put different equipment in it and fly it quite well. Yep. Uh, but as, as soon as it goes to the VH registry, you've got to make sure you're using the certified and fully stamped, documented and paper trailed uh, versions of what is roughly the same equipment. Yeah, and if you're looking at the statistics and uh, and you know CASA uh, puts these down as uh, fatalities per 100,000 flying hours, you know they have good good years and bad years. We have good years and bad years, but overall there there really is no difference in uh, safety wise. So um, there's no real reason to and and of course on the GA side, I'm, I'm purely looking at the statistics for the private. Yeah. Uh, GA operations and not including any charter or air work or anything. Yeah. So that, that's part so, of the fun is that GA is so broad. It's yeah. GA is everything from a Cessna 150 to a Gulfstream. Yeah. And, mm. you know, I, I wouldn't have a problem with someone 
who does you know private flying and maintaining their own Cessna uh, most of the maintenance uh, because it's been proven in in RA that uh, that's perfectly feasible. Well, the other thing to think of too is, I mean, from all the um, you know the LSA type or the, you know RAL's type aircraft that you see around the place, the level of technology in these new aircraft is <laughs> streaks ahead of you know some of the rather weather beaten old Cessnas and Piper Warriors <laughs> you see going oh, around yeah. that I learned to fly in. You know, and you even know. even if you compare the uh, the systems uh, that are coming out now that are uncertified, uh, they do a lot of what the glass cockpits uh, like the Garmin's yep. do uh, for at a fraction of the cost. I mean, just yep. look at the new Dynan Skyview system, what it does and what it will do with upgrades in the future. It's just amazing. And it's, a, you know, it's a it's a fraction of the cost of uh, putting a, a, a more G1000 at the moment does a lot more. But even once they bring it up to that level with integrated uh, autopilot, or actually it already has that, but integrating all the comms in it and navigation and um, yeah it's still going to be a, a tenth of the price for instance you've got a uh, sports star what's what's the level of technology that you've got in the cockpit in that mate uh, I've got a four pack in there a steam gauge four pack uh, now I, I, I mine not is quite a very, pack, huh? not quite a six pack I'm missing the gyro instruments uh, <laughs> okay. so mine is a pure VFR aircraft uh, but a lot of them are flying around with the uh, dynam uh, glass uh, cockpits in there uh, very advanced uh, having that uh, you know slave to uh, to autopilots and uh, and Garmin GPSs and again uh, not certified stuff uh, but it works just as well and it's just as reliable well uh, Baz, speaking of the sports star um, you're part of a uh, flying group there called aeroscene um, yep. what have you guys been up to over there anything uh, had any good trips away since we spoke to you last uh, we were supposed to have one uh, and then it, the, the weather interfered. Oh. Uh, now we've got uh, we've got one that's actually coming up uh, a week from now, 16th and 17th of October, to Mount Ive, which is a uh, working sheep station in the uh, Gawler Ranges, which is uh, in the western part of uh, South Australia on the York Peninsula, and that's going really well. We've got uh, just as the last time when it was wetted out, uh, we have probably 20 plus aircraft coming, so looking at 40, 45 people at least all sorts uh we've got you know rails we've got uh, choppers we've got uh, boring ga we've got really uh, <laughs> interesting ga um and uh, you know so there's a i think a group of three piper cubs that are flying in uh super cup and two j3s yeah uh, there's a couple of uh, rvs coming so we've got a really good mix of uh, yeah. all sorts of uh, ages and experiences and and aircraft so you know, from just someone new to recreational aviation like myself. And one of the people we're, we're having is a former uh, U.S. Uh, fast jet jockey uh, who's been doing uh, freight in heavies all over the world, including uh, trouble spots, which they, they thoroughly enjoyed him and his wife, who apparently went on the trips with him. So that looks like an interesting character to talk to. And now he's just fishing spotting out of, uh, he's retired, uh, semi-retired to, uh, to Australia, and he's doing fishing spotting in an, uh, this is Cessna Skymaster 337, oh, yeah. I believe. Yeah, the 337. Uh, Yep. Oh, yeah, my, um, fav- my favorite. And just having system. having lots of fun uh, doing private flying. So he's one of those guys that uh, just started doing it and uh, probably will never stop. That's a pretty interesting uh, eclectic bunch, not just the aircraft, but also the people. It sounds like it's going to be a great trip. Oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, I think the weather is going to be a little bit better this time around because, uh, yeah, last time was just an absolute joke. It was uh, it was fine, you know, the two days before and it was fine the two days after. Just the uh-huh. actual two days, it was 40 knot winds and clouds down to the ground and, yeah, uh, yeah no, one, no one could get there. And uh, fortunately, uh, nobody tried, um, <laughs> including the guys that came down from uh, Gympie in Queensland. 
Wow, that's um, a long decent flight. Yeah, they did it as part of a uh, of a of a, an, a longer trip, and they just thought, oh, this is on, so let's just go in there as well. But this time, we do have two guys flying up all the way from uh, Tasmania in a, in a Jabiru. Oh, cool! Well, well we know like it can a, be done. Owen did it. Yeah, Owen did. I was going to say, yeah. Owen's obviously uh, inspired a few people. Oh, people <laughs> do it. People do it all the time. It's uh, it's a very common crossing. I mean, uh, if you live if you live down there, if you, uh, I mean, there's. Not, not to say anything bad about it, I've never been there, but if you want to go somewhere else interesting, then uh, that's the only way to go, isn't it? Over the yeah. ditch. Mm. Yeah, true that. Well, I guess uh, some of them might be flying over for the uh, Parafield Air Show, Bez. Uh, were you, you were involved in that recently? Uh, I'm not really involved. I am I'm kept in the loop just because, you know, I'm there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the So we had one last year, which was, uh, it wasn't called the air show, it was called the air display uh-huh. because it wasn't a full air show, uh, but it was a great success. We had a lot of people coming around having a look at the displays and at the uh, aircraft static on the ground, which has been great. And it's going to happen again on the 30th of October 2011, so it's it's almost a full year away. But that's because they've got a lot of organizing to do. Because this time around, uh, they've got uh, CASA on their side, they've got air services on their side, they've got all the operators at the airfield on their side, and they're going to shut it down for a four-hour full-on non-stop display. It's going to have cool. some very interesting people there. Um, so they've established their credibility, and now everyone's willing to come and play, type of thing. Yeah, I think it's uh, a lot of the. In, in recent years, uh, one of the problems has been that a lot of the operators didn't really see the benefit, didn't want uh, the airfield to be shut down. And obviously, they've uh, overcome that hurdle now and they're happy to do it. I mean, it's only four hours on, on one Sunday um, that they're they're not going to have some income from a from a bit of people renting aircraft new and a bit of instruction. It's not a lot that we're talking about here. Yeah, but if, you, if you get four new customers coming in who start learning to fly, it kind of makes up for it, you know? Exactly. That's exactly, exactly right. That's just what I was going to say. I mean, you, you've, it's it's money well spent uh, in terms of, I guess it's it's a loss they're making perhaps on hiring, but you've got to inspire people. You've got to get people and capture their imagination and get them to consider coming in and taking a few flying lessons. And, you know, the exactly. few that might take the initial uh, trial instructional flight, you know, some of those are going to convert to people that are going to go on and spend, you know, a lot of money with them potentially. Yeah, exactly. And and your promotion is not something that aviation is really good at. And at the last uh, air show, uh, I mean, I was there. I was uh, pimping my ride. But... (laughs) Um, and we got some some tips out of that, and uh, I think one of them did some did at least some more lessons. I haven't really kept uh, kept track. It wasn't uh, quite as as much as uh, as I'd hoped, but uh, I think uh, we we can do better. It was basically just me there. Uh, there were a lot of people that you probably could have uh, spoken to if you had more people there, and just, you know just walked on. But we sold a few on the day. Uh, but other schools um, just weren't doing that. There there really is only one school that that offers this kind of flying at uh, at Paraf field where you know people who just come in off the street want to learn how to fly because the the other one is uh, uh, the University of Adelaide all right uh, uh, which uh, which well, of course they should have a stand there as well because yeah. you know they're in the business of uh, teaching people to fly as well but uh, it, it's just not happening for some reason hopefully this time they'll be a bit smarter and, and they will we've got a couple of great air shows in uh, South Australia anyway uh, that were in, in driving distance of uh, of Adelaide that people go to we've got the Barossa air show on as well I think 
it's going to be in May or in April uh, next year. I'll have to check, um, and we'll uh, we'll have to get uh, some some people from there on uh, on as well to uh, tell us what That'd they're going cool. to do. That's a good air show. Uh, Jamestown is on every couple of years, which is also a great air show. It's a bit farther north, but uh, the attendance last time I was there was just absolutely amazing, and uh, so were the displays. And and this year at Parafield, you know what I've heard, it's it's going to be fantastic. Uh, there's going to be uh, some of uh, Australia's best uh, pilots, uh, best display pilots are going to be there. Some of the the you know the best warbirds that you'll you'll see at only see at the the big air shows will be there. There'll be uh, oh, I I hear rumors there might be some pilots that have been on this podcast that are going to be there and strutting their stuff. Um, <laughs> I also, can think but, of a few people who are based yeah, there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure that Chris Baru is a given. Yeah. It's uh, an air yeah. show in South Australia. Of course, he's going to be there. That's reason. Yeah, well, it's, that's it's reason enough F. on its own to go. I reckon. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's uh, well, it's not his home airfield. His home airfield okay. is uh, Murray Bridge. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Where he's got his very own uh, aerobatic box. <laughs> and it's it's so small. And you, when you saw when you see it in Ursa, you look at the aerobatic box. And you think, who can do aerobatics in there? And then you learn that it's Chris Baru that flies in that box yeah. Like, yeah yeah he would fit yeah. his routine in there yep that's yeah. fair enough too because <laughs> <laughs> it's basically uh it's a kilometer by kilometer that's the entire uh the entire box wow uh, yeah, you have to turn pretty tight to uh, stay in there. Yeah. Uh, but there's also from some from farther afield. Uh, there'll be uh, uh, warbirds and aerobatic rides uh, that you can buy on the day. And of course, uh, you'll be able to buy uh, uh, vouchers uh, from the, the normal local operators. But there'll be some very special ones uh, that are just there for the day or just there for the weekend, uh, which uh, I'm sure John, who's, uh, who's doing a lot of the organizing, we spoke to him uh, he was on the show last year, is, is going to confirm soon. Uh, it's going to be absolutely fantastic, I'd say. Oh, it's wonderful, mate. Uh, well, uh, Baz, it's great to catch up with you and great to get you back on the show. It's uh, It's been far too long. I know. Um, the Aerocene Flying Group, that's at aerocene.com.au and uh, I believe you're uh, right in the middle of a, a bit of a re- website redesign at the moment. So uh, Yeah, that's correct. We'll keep our eyes on that. Yeah, but uh, do do go there and uh, we'll be uh, organising more events. We're, we're mainly going to focus on the longer events uh, like two or three days flying away that those are the ones we'll be organizing and ourselves but we'll also want to uh, promote and, and organize to go as as groups to uh, fly-ins uh, either a day or, or a weekend that, that other people are organizing uh, so it's always good to uh, not just go there to be with a group but just to go as a group as well and uh, that's really what we're uh, what we're trying to achieve we don't want to be a, a full club we don't have a president we don't have uh, uh, board meetings uh, we just uh, you know Try to get people together who want to have fun flying. Well, that's yep. all—that's what it's all about, isn't it? Enjoying what you're doing and letting other people see that you're enjoying what you're doing, and hoping that it, uh, you know, can raise awareness of aviation. And uh, that's what—that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's some good events like that going on around the country that we want to be involved in as well. Like uh, uh, like we spoke about really before the the, the flying days that, that groups organise where they get uh, young kids to uh, come up in an airplane uh, for uh, absolutely nothing or you know gold coin donation to a uh, like to a yeah, exactly, to a young charity. And uh, we want to be involved in that and, and organize our, our own as well. Uh, Gary, our, uh, uh, the other person, uh, the, the other main person in Aero scene is a, is, a, is a philanthropist, or however you pronounce that. Philanthropist, uh, yes. Yep, it's a bit hard for a Dutchman to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, he, t- he takes, uh, he already has his charity, which is the Assured Foundation, where he gives, uh, gives sick kids, uh, terminally ill kids, you know, they're, and their families, uh, you know, a, a last uh, 
day to remember or weekend to remember and then it includes uh, amongst his toys it includes uh, his helicopter uh, uh, rides and uh, we really want to extend that to uh, just give people uh, especially kids uh, a chance to experience aviation and uh, hopefully get excited by it that's oh, great that's wonderful mate and uh, people can also follow you on Twitter that's uh, Baz Sheffers all one word they can that's correct find out, find out about um, iPhone apps I think that's uh, you talk about that a lot on your Twitter feed don't you oh I do I'm, I'm working on an iPhone app uh, must be that plane crazy that's down it. under one you were working on yeah uh, I can do that as well once I finish <laughs> the one that's going to make me money yeah absolutely well we make, oh, it, we money. make it money yeah. right okay alright yeah, mate well yeah. thanks for coming back on the show with us and uh, let's let's uh, let's hope we catch up with you uh, a bit more frequently than we have been uh, lately that'd be fantastic I, I plan to. I think I've got a bit more time now, so uh, I, I'll definitely be back soon, and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Stick around, folks. Hannah Sark is coming up after the break. Welcome to your flight experience. You're strapped into the pilot seat of a 737 flight simulator. You advance throttles and power down the runway. Clear for the visual. You're up and away. Flight experience is exhilarating, unique and a whole lot of fun. It's the ultimate gift. So strap in someone you love with a gift voucher today. Your destination, one of 20,000 airports around the world. Call 1-800-737-800 or visit flightexperience.com.au. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. G'day, I'm Dave Gray. Are you a new show or a relatively new show that's trying to make your podcast sound great? Then you need to listen to Podcasters Emporium, a podcast that's by podcasters for podcasters. We'd be happy for you to join our community and be a part of what we call Podcasters Emporium. Join myself and James Williams as we explore podcasting and all its greatness. You can check out the show at podcastersemporium.com. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. And final big test, this vertical turn, clear the gate, then stick back and left, 9.2 G, so still a lot of energy in this airplane, even right at the end of the track. Can he improve on 111.15 or 112.30? That's one of the slowest times we've seen today from Hannes Ark. Well, it might have been one of the slowest times of the day from Hannes Ark, but it didn't seem to matter over there in Germany for the last round of the Red Bull Air Race. Hannes actually won that race, and he's been uh, very kind to join us on the line from Austria. Hi, Hannes. Hi. How is everybody down there? Yeah, it's a little bit cold down here, Hannes, so I'm hoping you're having better weather than we are right now. Actually, our weather is quite bad, but I still should be able to go fly, actually, with the helicopter. Ah, the remote control one or the real one? <laughs> no, no, not the real, uh, the real ones. Yeah, for sure, the real ones. I love helicopter flying. Well, Hannes, it's been a bit of a, uh, I guess, a rocky season for everybody on the Red Bull Air Race. The uh, season's been cut short. There was a few weather delays this year, which I guess we haven't experienced so much in, in recent seasons. At the end of it, it was all cut short. Uh, you came second this year in the World Championship. Paul Bonheim came first. Um, how would you rate this season compared to other seasons? I have to tell you honestly, for me, and I'm absolutely convinced of that, it was the most successful 
successful season I ever had. Uh, also, the official result is second in the World Championship. But uh, if you look back uh, at all the results and uh, how our team developed and uh, all the other, uh, all the net times and, and track records, I think it was the most successful season we had. You were pretty close to Paul at the end. Only four points separated you. So, yeah, one more race and it could have gone the other way. To be honest, uh, how I look back at the season, I mean, there was uh, the disaster of Abu Dhabi for me, which was a disaster, you know, because um, I think I got like the victim a little bit of much um, tougher judging, you know, this, the change, the judging uh, mentality. So so I'm still not convinced. I still think it's unfair, but that's like in football. Sometimes they do wrong decisions and later on you realize and then it's like that. So I was, to be honest, able to overcome that, you know, in in Perth, I had I had lots of problems to still motivate myself for the rest of the season. But luckily, just before the qualifying in Perth, I got really motivated uh, through my team, which they've been really sticking to me. So then I said, okay, let's forget it and let's try to win the rest of the season, you know. And luckily, that happened, you know. I have been able to win the next three races with lots of risk, for sure. Lots of risk involved because I had to attack. There was no choice i had to win not not a second or third place uh, compared to paul who always went a little bit like ah if i'm in between the first three it's fine for me <laughs> and i think that was also the reason why i kind of like skipped that gate in new york because i had to attack you know i had to take the risk uh, i had a fast net time you know i nearly won the race so it was close so from that point of view i was on a on a uh, come back line, you know, and then unfortunately they, they cancelled the last two races and that was for me the big big thing, you know, that was really disappointing yeah. for me. No, indeed, I mean, you can definitely see that you, 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 you certainly psyched yourself back up and got back into the swing with coming first in Perth and then again in, in Rio and Windsor, but it was it was quite clear you were you were going hard and pushing it. Uh, uh, Windsor was where you had that face first into the uh, pylon during the the practice. It was it was sorry qualifying day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was qualifying. No, it was the training day. I think it was the last training. And uh, yep, I have to I have to uh, say it was a, it was a pilot's mistake clearly, you know. And uh, luckily, I was I don't know. Um, I had the luck. Uh, it was the, the right time. The right energy was around. I did the right thing. Uh, I was fast and luckily I got away, you know, but yeah. it was close. And uh, I would say um, I learned, you know, I learned big times, which was also a little bit for me, the handicap in, in, in Germany, because I was always a little bit afraid to stall the airplane in this 270 turn. But, uh, well, uh, better uh, stay on the safe side and risk again and do the same mistake again. Oh, well, it, it did pay off. Your flying was great in Germany. You came through and won again. So obviously all coming together quite well. Germany, I was really happy about Germany because, uh, I mean, before the disappointment, you know, before Germany, I still was like happy. I was like, I said, New York, you know what? Um, it, it would have been a lot to ask for to win four races in a row. So I did a small <laughs> mistake. Well, can live with that. But uh, I've seen three races to catch up to Paul, you know, and uh, when they canceled then uh, the last race, I said, well, you know what? There are still two races. I can do it in two races. But then when they canceled, like, uh, the, the second race, the second last race in the season, I was like, hey, guys, 
now it's no more in my hands. You know, I can do the best, but if you go into a race like in Germany, and then you have to wait that you are that uh, Paul is doing a mistake, that's that's not not a cool situation to be in. You know, so uh, also for the motivation because you know, hopefully I can win, and once you win, you have to lean back and wait that the other one is doing mistakes. It's not my style, you know. Yeah. And how was it uh, virtually in front of a home crowd, I guess, being there uh, in that part of the world, Hannes? Did that help to uh, focus your mind a bit? Absolutely. I mean, the motivation was, again, quite down, you know, at the beginning of the race, not just us, like all the teams, everybody, because uh, also the announcement that the race doesn't go on in 2011. so, So it was really hard to motivate. And then I said to myself, and I briefed my team and said, look, guys, uh, that's what we owe to ourselves, you know, because we are racing guys. We love the race, you know, we love what we do. So we, we stick uh, to the airways and we, we do it till, till uh, the last race. And that's what we did. Also, uh, we owed it to our fans, you know, and that was cool because somehow it was the last race for a long time, you know, last race of the season. I could show that I'm really a fast pilot that I've been basically the fastest battle of the season. It was at home. Uh, lots of fans have been there. So it was a very, very emotional race. And for me, personally, very, very motivating. To take that motivation with me uh, to keep on uh, uh, fighting for the errors and hopefully it comes back. With this season that's just been, which track was your favorite this year? Hmm. That's a good question. I think Perth was a very difficult one from uh, from from the tactics point of view, a combination of tactics and uh, trying to find the right line. Rio de Janeiro, I liked Rio very much. It was a very smooth track. It was not like an action-packed track. Uh, it was you had to fly very fine, very much. To, to find the detail to take on the early energy. But most, I think, I loved uh, winter. Also, I nearly crashed, but winter was... <laughs> Was was a cool track, you know. I knew it from the from the year before, and yeah, I just, I just loved winter. I mean, it, that was action, you know. But um, but I love it. Yeah, yeah. I think winter did, was my my most favorite track. Okay, how did you find New York as a first time to go there? <laughs> yeah, New York was interesting. New York for me, <laughs> especially for me as an Austrian, you know, because I never have been in New York, and then as an Austrian growing up in a small place, mountains, landscape, nature, around, and then you. You're down there, and the first time you approach the track, you face the skyline of Manhattan and this, this uh, big, big uh, town just in front of you, you know, with all the history and all that, that emotions involved there, you know. So that was quite cool, the approach, and I had the problems to focus uh, when I approached the first training. But, I mean, once in the track, the track is the same than any other track. And New York, we all have been afraid that the track is too tight, but it was not. It was it was also a nice track to fly, except that I clicked the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> that one little detail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell us about how you viewed the competitiveness this season, Hannes. It seemed to me like there was a lot of errors from a, a lot of the pilots, even some of the top runners this year. Uh, I think you, you had a couple of pylon hits. We had Matt hitting the water. Of course, the uh, the incident with Addison Kindleman at the start of the year. Uh, we asked Matt Hall about this a few weeks ago, about whether he felt that perhaps it was much more competitive now and maybe this was leading to uh, a little bit more of uh, unforced errors or pilot error. How, how would you view the uh, the competitiveness this season with by comparison to others? To be honest, uh, I don't think so that uh, the pilots have been more competitive than the years before, to be honest. 
we all are race pilots. So no matter if it's the second season, the third, the fourth or the fifth, I always want to be as fast as possible out there. And it's not so much me against Hall or me against Bonham. It's more against me against the time, you know, me against like uh, my last best performance, trying to do it better. And that's what you do from the first training on. That's what I did the last year. That's what I did this year. And I also found out that it's not about who is the most aggressive pilot out there, who is fighting most, you know, in the track. Uh, that doesn't help you. It doesn't help you to be fast. You have to fly smooth. You have to find the right line. You have to do your homework. And if you keep your airplane at the same altitude all track long, you work good with your energy, you find the right line, you are flying the most safe line. Those are the fastest line. So I don't think so. It was the it was the competitive. It, it, it was not the competitive pilot who who caused all those incidents. I think it was more like maybe the stress we all had before racing because the airways got bigger. You know, more media, more distraction before the race, more technical issues with all the onboard cameras and stuff. So we all had not the right time to really focus and also track design and 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 you know i mean not improvements everywhere so so i think that has a lot to do with, with the incidents we had plus at the end it's a number game we had 50 races nothing happened and you just wait for something that happened and now it was this year where lots of things happened i mean it's that's it's a dangerous sport and and uh we are humans and we do mistakes so so i see it a little bit from that point of view Yep. And I mean, Eddie, well, he was just not ready for racing, to be honest. We just hit him a bit too hard, yeah? I mean, it was hitting him hard. He was not ready for racing. And then you, you get thrown into this uh, race with lots of pressure from yourself, from your family, from your fans, from your sponsors, from from your environment, even uh, probably from the other pilots. Also, they, we never pushed him, but probably he felt like that he had to deliver, you know. And that was just too early for him. I think uh, he should have uh, done more trainings at home, prepare more for the race organization. I mean, they saw that in, in Abu Dhabi he was not ready, so they shouldn't have allowed him to race, you know. And then the funny thing is, after Matt's incident, they kind of like punished him not to race the next race, which I didn't see a reason for, you know. I mean, that's like some decisions I didn't get anyway this year. There were a few interesting decisions came out during the course of the year, but uh, you mentioned the distractions. You just touched on a few of them there. They've, they've, that's pretty much been hitting everyone this year, hasn't it? The more media attention, more more press conferences, uh, more distractions before you get into the, the, the groove of the race, isn't it? Absolutely, and I mean you have to be in this in this groove, in this sound uh, to be safe, to deliver, and, and uh, still you're able to do mistakes. You know, so I think that's what we have to learn for the future: that we give the athletes, like the pilots, also the peace in mind and the time to find this peace in mind before the race, so they can really focus on their job. And because there's lots, there's enough time, like before the race and days before. Uh, for me and for all the other duties you have to do as a professional pilot. Do, do you have a uh, a routine where you make sure you've got a certain amount of time before race or various areas where that's it, you're on your own, you're, you're doing your prep? I mean, do you have those times, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I have my times. I mean, it's a process that starts already before the race and the more uh, the race day uh, comes, you know, the, the more I really focus on racing and don't worry about small details anymore. 
And like the last two days, I'm just like focused and I have a great team that takes away all the worries and all the stress and all the additional work. So they don't even let me know, you know, <laughs> I'm just short before the race, like an hour before the race. <laughs> I'm in my zone, you know, I don't, I don't do anything. If there's a media coming or a VIP or whoever, I don't care. You know, I'm in my zone. Yeah. I have to, because otherwise yeah. that would be for me too dangerous. I need that to focus and then I can deliver and then I can be safe and then I can get the marks out of me. Which doesn't mean I'm not doing mistakes as we saw in winter. But yeah, it's it's always possible to make the mistake, but you're doing all you can to make sure you're you're focused and in that zone. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a big lesson for a lot of the pilots is to to make sure that they've got that time to to focus in. I know Matt was saying uh, for his incident at Windsor, he he allowed himself to to have too many distractions and put him into a a space where he he didn't quite fly to his best. If you always look back, you always find most of the time it's distraction, you know. So, uh, Hannes, obviously everybody who's a fan of the race now uh, would be aware that it's not coming back in 2011. They're saying that they're coming back in 2012. Can you tell me what's the mood amongst the pilots? Is there still a degree of optimism there? How is everybody feeling about the events that have come around in the last month with regard to the race? To be honest, there are two sides. The one side is a big disappointment because we love what we do. For me, for example, it's my dream job, best time in my life I had the last couple of years. So, so there is a big disappointment, but uh, then you try to think from a professional point of view and you think like, okay, we as pilots, we complained a lot about different things. We haven't been happy about certain things uh, as we just spoke about distractions and stuff, you know. And now, let's say the Red Bull comes and says, you know what, guys, uh, we want to do it better. So you can treat it now as like, ah, why don't we continue, blah, 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 you know, or you just say, cool. I mean, if those guys say they are not happy with, with what we did, like from a marketing point of view, they also said like pilot safety, whatever, you know, then we just can't be happy that they kind of like press a reset button and try to do it better. And, and I think it's a big chance for all of us. And if I think about it right now, I'm motivated for that. I'm motivated to give everything from my side, you know, the knowledge, the experience I have, uh, and everything I can do to make the areas alive again and make it alive in a better way in 2012. I think it's a big chance. If it works, it was worth fighting for. If it doesn't work, at least I can say I took the chance. So that's my approach to the whole thing, you know. And I think it's an approach of a very optimistic guy, for sure. (laughs) It's me. Anyway, I love what I do, so why not taking the chance? Well, there's certainly grounds for optimism. I mean, they've had huge crowds this year around the world, haven't they? It, it seems to be gaining in popularity, and it's not easy, I guess, to, to start up a new sport like this and expect it to be instantly popular, and it's it's going to take time to evolve to where they can get it to the standard they want. So hopefully over this uh, 12-month break, they can uh, they can make some great strides towards that goal. I think so, to be honest. I mean, I'm long enough with that company here uh, in former days as a base champ as a climber, as a paragliding pilot, all kind of, all kind of jobs. And it was like, if they say yes to something, they stick to it, you know? And uh, so they said yes to the airways. They haven't been happy. Obviously, they wanted to have a bigger change in whatever, you know? Uh, so it's, I think it, it's only good that they do that. Also, knowing that they're really motivated to do it better. And you also have to see, I mean, also it was successful, but somebody had to pay all those things, you know, and if there hasn't been enough sponsors, like team sponsors, then everything was paid by Red Bull. And I can imagine it, also if it's nice, but once they say, you know what, it's just expensive, we have to get more partners, we 
have to get more other sponsors, you know. So what do you need for that? You need first a race calendar, you know. So you need to be early enough with a race calendar, which we haven't been, you know. So if you're early enough with a race calendar, then you got your media contracts. And if you have media contracts, then you can sell it to the sponsors. And then the whole train starts to, to, to roll, you know. But, but if one of those things is not organized, it's always hard to get where you want. And I think that's, that's a big reason. And then for sure, safety-wise, they want to work for the safety. They want to make it safer than it is right now for incidents that happen, like to Matt, to Kindleman, to me. All, all those incidents could have been worse, you know. So I think it's also something, a big commitment to us athletes from, from our boss that he says, you know what, I don't want uh, my athletes to die, you know. So, We've had yeah. some talk around too, Hannes, about the, there's a little bit of debate going on, it seems, about flying over water versus flying over land. Um, would you have a preference or really it doesn't make any difference to you? Actually, I don't care because, uh, I mean, sometimes it has to be over the water because of media, because of event locations, then let's fly over the water, you know, and the same is over the land. Me, personally, my preference is land because uh, it's just easier for me to know where I am exactly, and also there are more obstacles around and stuff, but I see all of them, and then I can find my better line, and it's just, like, more predictable for me. Water, I think sometimes I have been closer to the border than I was aware and I don't like those situations but I mean if you have the right rescue team there if you have the right track if you have a cool monocoque in the airplane you know if it protect us as good as possible I'm ready I'm I love that race and I think uh, I don't have to go in the water to be fast so, so I don't care basically so what what are you going to do over the 12 months to stay I mean, you're going to have to obviously stay in practice. What opportunities will there be for you to to make sure that you keep your skill level right up where you want it? For instance, are they going to be having regular training camps for the pilots? I can't tell you right now. I think it's too early to ask those questions because the organization now is uh, reorganizing them, themselves right now. So uh, before they do a plan. So, But I think uh, that would be a good idea to have at least two camps where you can uh, train what we learned the last couple of years to keep it alive. On the other hand, other hand I'm doing lots of air shows next year. Like... <laughs> I'm just like with my uh, assistant just uh, going now over all the, the uh, air shows next year and there are a lot coming up. I also have sponsor commitments. My sponsor Abu Dhabi is still committed to uh, stick to Team Hanizaj. So so that's something nice. Also my uh, main sponsor Red Bull is speaking to me, it's, uh, which has nothing to do with the airways because lots of people mix it up always. So we have lots of sponsor commitments. Uh, uh, I will keep my name alive, you know, because because that's a brand right now out there. It works good, especially in Austria. I have a great team. I want to keep that team. And as soon we know what's going on, if there's a 2012, uh, once we know how the 2012 will look like, if it's in the same format, the same rules, everything, once we know that, then we will start to work hard to be uh, ahead of the game uh, again uh, in 2012. Excellent. Uh, are, you, are you going to be doing more uh, improvements on the aircraft, taking some lessons learned from this year and maybe tweaking up the aircraft and testing it out? or Because airshow flying is normally a bit different to Red Bull kind of flying. It's, is is that is there anything you're going to have to do to to keep those two together? 
not really because I have my airshow airplane anyway. It's a different one than my race aircraft and I did also airshow. I anyway did airshows because I think it's important to stay skilled uh, in flying the aircraft. I love it, you know, I love the freestyle flying. So I think uh, I think it's a good thing to, to focus on flying again because you could also say, well, just by air racing, you forget how to fly an aerobatic aircraft. And the aerobatic is the base of flying those aircraft. So I think it's good for me to do a little bit more aerobatics again. And uh, so, so you're going to be doing the air shows. Whereabouts are you going to be doing the shows? Are you able to give us some uh, dates and locations? Uh, I just know one big one. The other ones are more like the smaller ones or more like air shows for sponsors, you know. So I'm the only one who's flying there, especially event for the sponsor and stuff. But there's one big one in July or in summertime in, in Austria. It's one of the biggest air shows worldwide, actually, where lots of uh, military teams will show up. There's always a a special theme uh, going on. Like last year, I think it was an air race, air race theme going on, okay. uh, like the history of air racing and stuff. And it is in Teltwick. Teltwick is like in Austria. It's like a great air show. So we will do a big show there, show up with my team, all the merchandising, uh, big media. And in Austria, it's anyway, like uh, if I show up somewhere, we always use... Um, those times uh, to talk to medias and, and to be here for our fans, you know, and that's what we yep. still want to do in 2011 to keep the name alive, to keep the name of the areas alive, to keep our fans to be ready for 2012. We know we've got a big air show coming up here in March next year, Hannes. We should lobby them to get you out here for that. <laughs> no, I would come immediately if somebody is uh, is uh, organizing everything and is uh, getting my aircraft down there. I would love to fly at, at your air shows down there. Sure, it would be great together with Matty, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could offer to put one of our stickers on your aircraft, Hannes, but I don't know what else we could do. <laughs> <laughs> if that is enough money to pay the transfer of my aircraft, happy, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't even pay the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'm sorry for you guys. <laughs> no, but maybe you organize somebody or like, who knows, you know, somebody's listening now and he says, I want to have Hannes, Hannes Arch down there to, to give us a good show. I'm ready. That would be awesome. Excellent. Hannes, one question now. We're looking at 2012, keeping yourself going in 2011, 2012. From what all that you know at the moment, what's the likelihood that Red Bull will be back in 2012? I know you're an optimist, but what do you think? I had uh, several conversations with several like so-called important guys. You know, Out of those conversations, I think the chance that we don't have an errors is quite high. Why? Because all of those guys really want to have the errors, you know? I mean, uh, even in the in the in those marketing meetings, they announced that they want to have the errors back. But, and that's the big but, you know, yeah. but in the right way. So first, they have to do their homework. I don't know how long it takes. I'm not a marketing guy. Yeah. But just knowing that they are motivated, they're not doing politics, maybe, and now we just announced and stuff. So they're really motivated to have the errors back into 2012. If that is the case, I believe in it, you know, and then uh, the chance is really high that we get the RS back in an even stronger uh, way with a big base, you know, foundation to, 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 to build up for the future. 
And that's my motivation, and that's how I feel right now, and that's what I really believe in. Uh, time's getting the better of us, Hannah, so we better wrap it up there. Um, Hannah, you've got a lot of fans down here in Australia. Uh, you're very well received when you're here in Perth, I noticed. Uh, have you got a, perhaps a message for them, uh, for your fans down here, uh, because we won't see you for a while? Yeah, sure, I have a message. I mean, uh, all my fans, they should speak to me because they, I'm sure they know who was the fastest pilot this year, you know? <laughs> so uh, it's worth <laughs> uh, it's worth to stick with Team Hannah's heart. I uh, will be back in 2012 for sure if there's any areas. And definitely, as Perth was one of those locations, uh, what I know that really worked out well. Everybody felt confident, was uh, the pilot's most favorite location a little bit, you know. Yeah. So I think Perth should be in the race calendar. So all our fans should come and uh, and celebrate the new edition of Aries in 2012 together with us and maybe even a victory of Team HA, no? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Most excellent. And of course, they can follow you on your website, which is uh, hannasark.com and also on the Red Bull Air Race website. Hannes, we really appreciate it. It's always a thrill for us to speak to pilots of your calibre, and uh, we, we so much appreciate that you've uh, spent a bit more time with us on the show this evening. Uh, we wish you all the best for the off-season, the extended off-season, and we, we certainly hope that we can catch up with you again, perhaps uh, you know towards the uh, beginning of the next Red Bull Air Race season. Yeah, hopefully, and uh, thanks for speaking with us in such a great way. I appreciate it too. Thanks, Hannes. Thanks, Hannes. You might have seen the Red Baron performing daring aerobatic feats over Sydney's magnificent beaches. Now it's time for you to see the world from the Red Baron's point of view. Whoa, probably upside down. Go to redbaron.com.au to find out more about scenic tours and aerobatic flights with the Red Baron. You could fly in the Pitt's special open cockpit biplane, the Red Bull stunt plane, or the new Gippsland air van. To find out more or to book your flight, phone 97910643 or go to redbaron.com.au. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. What do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. That is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, Come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. Want to advertise your business on the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plane Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com
And welcome back, folks. Now, uh, Grant's just had to uh, step out for a few minutes, but that was really a fascinating interview there with Hannes Ark, and we really appreciate him spending the time. It was actually quite late at night, I, th- I think, over there in Austria when we interviewed him, but uh, he was always very popular when he was over here, so it's uh, great that he spends some time to talk to his fans down here, and uh, even though we probably won't see him on our shores next year, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the year after that he'll be back, God willing that the uh, Red Bull Air Race returns to our shores. So uh, on to our next uh, story here. Now, we haven't heard from our good friend and historian David Vanderhoof for a while, uh, but uh, we've had some interesting news on some uh, upgraded FA-18 Hornets that are going to be start making their way across here uh, for the uh, Royal Australian Air Force. So uh, David joins us on a line from Pennsylvania. Hi, mate. Hey, how are you doing? Greetings, everyone, from the um, part of the world that's becoming fall. We're, we're at a crisp 60 degrees Fahrenheit today, and it's getting close to winter which is kind of depressing, which means air show season's over. But glad to be back on PCDU, my home away from home in Australia. <laughs> now, speaking of air shows, mate, uh, you've done really well with the media, uh, the media pass uh, bizzo over the air show season over there, and uh, you've made it to a number of really great shows and got some wonderful interviews on Airplane Geeks. But uh, recently you uh, were at uh, which air show, mate? Um, the last air show was NAS Oceana, which is the master jet base for the United States Navy on the Atlantic. All of the Atlantic Fleet F-18 squadrons are there, uh, varying once when they're not on the carrier. So the squadrons differ every year at Oceana because you never know who's deployed and who's not deployed. But it is the largest naval jet base on the East Coast. So it, there's plenty of F-18s to go around, Legacy Hornets and Super Hornets. So, uh, yeah, the interesting thing about the uh, the F-18, of course, is that it's a naval aircraft over there in the, uh, in the U.S. and it's an Air Force aircraft here. Of course, we don't have... Uh a fleet air arm these days, and the last fighter jets that we had flying with our Navy were A-4s. So, Real airplanes. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, of course, the FA-18 Hornet is uh, coming you know, more and more to prominence here, and uh, David was really lucky at this air show to grab an interview with an FA-18 pilot who's flown both the Legacy Hornet and the new one. This is David Vedder for Plane Crazy Down Under. I'm here with Tom Robson, um, Commander. Um, Commander has hours in both the F-18C-A and has flown the Super Hornet. And we're going to have a little conversation right now about what the transition what the transition is from a Legacy Hornet to a Super Hornet. Um, Commander Robson, what's what's the difference between the two aircraft? Well, the, uh, I started out in the Hornet, and that's the one where I have most of my hours in. Uh, folks call it the Legacy Hornet, but it's actually the Hornet and the Super Hornet, um, or Rhino is the call sign for that aircraft. But uh, the Hornet is a very nimble, um, I like to refer to it as the sports car version uh, as compared to the uh, Super Hornet. The Super Hornet is ex- also extremely maneuverable, but it's about 25% larger than the Hornet itself. Uh, that adds to it a great deal of inertia, which limits its roll rate. Well, it doesn't really limit it per se, but is not as quick or as nimble as the Hornet. However, it is still uh, well above or on par of most fourth generation, fifth generation fighters out there. Um, the uh, roll rates, the pitch rates are all uh, pretty uh, eye-watering in the Super Hornet. Just the, uh, the Hornet is uh, a little more nimble. 
Um, and you like the fact on the Super Hornet you got more gas with you, and so you don't have to co jump back to the boat and lose a pylon with a tank, correct? Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, when, when, as far as the background goes on that, the uh, Hornet's growth capability had pretty much hit a limit. Uh, couldn't put any more boxes into it. It was already full. Um, so it's coupled with that was its bring back ability to the carrier or back to land where it had a maximum landing weight. And if you're taking away bring back capability with additional boxes versus weapons or fuel, uh, it limits you. So the Super Hornet was the follow-on, allowing follow-on growth to uh, the Hornet. Um, and the fuel on a Super Hornet is a, almost twice as much, about two-thirds as much, again, as uh, what's in a, a regular Hornet. Gives you a much, much greater on-station time, support for troops, and also, uh, depending on how much fuel you have and uh, so on and so forth, allows you to bring back a lot more weapons if they haven't been expended. Or on the flip side of that is to carry a lot more weapons. The Super Hornet has uh, 10 weapon stations on it versus seven on the, uh, the Legacy Hornet. Well, thank you, Commander Robinson. I really appreciate the insight, and hopefully our listeners will enjoy it. Now, David, I've got to say before we go any further, what was that in the background? It sounded to me very much like a P-51. Um, actually, I think that was a AT-6, since it was a Navy aircraft at SNJ. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I tell you, it, it makes it hard to concentrate even on a fascinating interview like that when you've got such wonderful background noise. I, I'm, uh, I've got to compliment you on uh, keeping focus there. Eh, Harvards are Harvards. <laughs> You've seen one, you've seen them all. Oh, gee whiz. Must be terrible when you've got so many uh, great warbirds over there to pick from. Yeah, Texans are Texans are a dime a dozen. Well, uh, anyway, talking about the FA-18, uh, interesting what he was having to say there about the uh, the older Hornets, um, you know, sort of uh, being tucked into the limits of their, their carrying capacity more than anything else, hence the genesis of the FA-18Fs. The FA-18 design, that sort of generated around the mid to late 1970s, didn't it? Uh, the F-18 is actually was based on the F-17 which was built by Northrop. It was called the Cobra. It lost to the F-16 Fighting Falcon in the lightweight fighter competition, which the United States Air Force implemented because we were trying to find a lightweight fighter that would be a light, nimble dogfighter that would complement the more expensive F-15 Eagle. Uh, the loser was the F-17 the YF-17, and Northrop then went to McDonnell Douglas, and they were going to co-build the aircraft together, which became the F-18. McDonnell Douglas was going to be build the naval version, which was a beefed-up version, and Northrop was still going to build the YF-17, which was going to be the land version. Well, no one wanted the YF-17, but the YF-18 went into production, and whereas we still have them as naval, the majority of the world flies F-18s as land-based aircraft. Australia, Canada, Finland, Kuwait has F-18 C's and D's. So there was a worldwide export for a twin-engined fighter in the class of the F-16. Now, why Canada and Australia have purchased it was the extra engine adds for redundancy. An F-16 is great, but it only has one engine. If you lose an engine and you're in the middle of the outback, you're going to lose the aircraft. Canada, Canada and Australia viewed it as having an extra engine was an asset given their large open spaces where these aircraft operate that will give you 
gave them, get them back home. The same logic goes with the United States Navy. Most naval fighters have extra engines because it gives them a redundancy to be able to get the aircraft home. That's almost ironic then, isn't it, that uh, both those countries, Australia and Canada, are going to be making uh, major purchases of the F-35 in, in coming years, and that's a single-engine aircraft. This is true, um, but engine reliability has gotten a lot better from the 70s and the early 80s. So the logic now is simpler. Reading about the F-35 today, it's kind of amazing. It's going to replace the F-18s A, B, C, and D, the F-16s A, B, C, D, the A-10 Warthog, the EA-6B Prowler in the Marine Corps. The amount of aircraft that this one air, these three versions or one aircraft are replacing is staggering. The world will be flying F-35s and not much else. That puts it in context, the, the huge amount of development time that this aircraft is um, is taking, as it turns out. The, if you look at the development of the F-16 or the F-18, the development time was longer too. It was just they, they went into production and then the development occurred on the back end. Yeah. The, if you look at a Block 60 F-16, it bears nothing, no resemblance to what was one the lightweight fighter competition. It's got bulges. It's got fuel tanks. It has no resemblance to anything that was supposed to carry two sidewinders on the wings and be just an ultimate dogfighter. Airplanes change over time. Yeah, that's very true. And um, that can certainly be said of the Hornet. Uh, the interesting thing about most of the Hornets that we've got here at the moment, the FA-18As, uh, most of those are actually licensed built here. Um, the, the, I think the first few that came across were built in the US and the rest were built here under license down at uh, Hawker de Havilland. So uh, was that the case, do you know? I know the, the Canadians uh, label these as CF-18s. Uh, were they built in the U.S.? They were built in the U.S. The Canadian, you always use a prefix C. And actually, the, the Canadian Hornet is not considered called a Hornet for one, because in order for Canada, you have to be bilingual. So there is no French translation for Hornet. The other thing is the Canadian aircraft is called the CF-188. Oh, um, interesting. And you could always, and interesting enough, their serial numbers on their aircraft are 188001 up through 300 for their A's and B's. Okay, well, that's an interesting bit of trivia that I, I never knew, actually. Just out of interest, I was watching, a, there was a video on YouTube not long back of a uh, one of the CF-18s that uh, came to grief uh, while training for an air show. Did you see that? Actually, the most interesting part of that was the uh, the in-cockpit video and how cool and calm that pilot was uh, right up until the point it became unrecoverable and then straight out he went. The F-18 demo pilots from Canada are really good at what they do. Canada always develops one aircraft and they rotate this through the squadrons, one high-vis aircraft that they use for their demo aircraft for the season. Um, and their demo pilots are really good at what they do. Now, I've never seen the in- inside cockpit video of that accident, but I have have seen the still footage and the external footage. And he basically wrote it down as far as he could before evacuating the airplane. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Now, mate, we were talking about, um, you know, the development of the aircraft over time. So we want to get on to talking about this, uh, this, this new one that we found in the uh, Australian Aviation Online uh, website here. It's uh, dated the 24th September and it's talking here about the RAAF's first FA-18F Plus uh, rolling off the production line over there in St. Louis. Now I had not heard of this variant before but apparently um, this is being developed as a special variant for the uh, for the Royal Australian Air Force with some future upgrades in mind. When Australia decided to purchase the F-18F, um, a decision was made to purchase them inside of a block. The first 12 you received were straight F-18Fs. The second set of 12 were going to be purchased in a block 
being built by um, Boeing at St. Louis, which the Navy were getting are EA EA-18G Growlers, which is going to be the replacement of the Prowler, the EA-6B. The Growler is a electronic warfare, electronic countermeasures jamming aircraft because right now Australia does not need the aircraft, but they do need the F-18s to supplement their Air Force until you do get the F-35. They purchased these F-18F pluses inside a block of EA-18 Growlers. The advantage that you guys are doing, and this is one of the smartest things governments don't normally do this and think ahead is, what it gives Australia the capability of doing is when they get their F-35s, they will not need to retire this block of aircraft. They will be able to convert them because they will be already hardwired to become EA-18 Growlers, which means you will have an electronic jamming and electronic countermeasures force in the Asia-Pacific region region that to supplement us in the United States, but it will give you an electronic variant that you wouldn't have had if you got just straight F-18Fs. So the F-18F pluses right now are coming off the line as your normal fighter bomber Super Hornet or Rhino. Later on, though, should the decision be made, it'll be a very quick turnaround to take the pylons off the wings for the um, AIM-9Xs, replace them with large pods to um, provide jamming, as well as all the internal electronics to provide to support a jamming and a um, electronics countermeasures aircraft. So are these missions that the, the Growler would perform I believe uh, in the States, um, the Air Force there calls them wild weasel missions. Is that right? No. There is electronic countermeasures, and then there's wild weasel. Wild weasel is what they called SEED, which is suppression of enemy air defenses. What a wild weasel does, and normally what people, when they hear wild weasels, they think of F-4 Phantoms. Mm. They are a anti-radiation aircraft. They fly normally with HARMS, the high-speed anti-radiation missile, which is a very large missile which is designed to blow up radars. Electronic countermeasures is jamming so that your aircraft can get through a threshold and um, to protect the flight package from um, being locked on by the enemy radars and to defend them. Also, in this world of modern electronics, the EA-18 Growler has the ability to suppress electronic emissions like cell phones and internet connectivity with their radar. But we no longer have a wild weasel mission separated from the electronic countermeasures mission. After Desert Storm, the EA-6B, which was originally just a jammer, kind of, and the EF-111, SparkVark, the um, electronic version of the F-111 that you guys are so fond of and unfortunately are losing, were not armed. They were electronic emitters, but they were not able to defend themselves. After Desert Storm, when they retired the EF-111s, the EA-6Bs got the ability to carry harms, high-speed radiation uh, missiles. So not only can they um, block the emissions, they can they can now take them out with a missile. There are F-16 blocks that are designed for suppression of enemy de- defenses. The EA-6G, the EA-18G, a lot of EAs going on here, folks, yeah. um, is also capable of carrying the harms. 
so that they can not only jam the radars, but they can take them out physically with their risk missiles. The adva- also, the advantage of the EA-18G is it is ability to carry um, self-defense weapons. The Prowlers never had it. The EF-111s never carry them. But the Prowler will normally carry two AIM-120 missiles for self-defense. So not only can they take out radars with their harms, they can also take out an enemy aircraft that might be engaging them. So it's a very versatile platform. Does that also mean, I, I guess, the advantage of that too is that they potentially wouldn't have to be escorted in theatre while they're doing uh, their electronic role? They could defend themselves if they had to. Absolutely. They are a operating alone um, or they would be flying with a package, meaning that you would have one EA-18 Growler flying with additional F-18Fs to be part of a strike package. EA-18 providing electronic defense for the other aircraft. Like you say, it's an amazing piece of um, forward thinking from a government, and particularly one of our governments. I mean, gee, that's just amazing. Uh, I always thought, you know, it's it's it's, it's always been said um, when they, they made the purchase of the uh, Rhinos that they would only be brought in as a stopgap measure in much the way that um, we what, you know, we had F4s here back in the uh, early 70s until the F-111 arrives. My thought always has been, well, we're spending so much money buying these aircraft, it seems like a waste just to have them for, you know, eight or ten years and then get rid of them. Uh, so I, I'm I'm glad they're sort of future-proofing these in a way. Yeah, it's a really, it's it's a good deal across the board. You got them quicker instead of waiting for a normal production block of F-18Fs, and you've got the ability to grow the aircraft. So you will eventually, and Lord willing, when you'll have two high-performance aircraft instead of just one. You'll have F-35s, the A-version, and the EA-18s. So, and you'll have a good complement strike if you participate and in the Asia theater. And uh, you can see here from the picture on uh, the Australian uh, Aviation website that uh, the, the first Hornet that's flown uh, as this F-A-18F Plus spec is carrying the tail markings of number six squadron. Uh, and for those who don't know, that is uh, currently an F-111 squadron that's based up there at uh, the Ambly Air Force Base in Queensland. So I guess uh, a lot of those F-111 crews now will be uh, you know, cross-training, uh, doing their conversion across to the FA-18, or actually we know they've actually been over in the States uh, rotating in and out of there for uh, a couple of years now uh, doing that conversion training. So I imagine it would be um, quite a change to f- going from what would be, I guess, quite a heavy aircraft in the F-111 to going across to a uh, you know a much more modern aircraft that's, uh, at least according to the pilot you spoke to there, a much more nimble and responsive machine. Well, actually, Commander Robson um, was has flown quite a few aircraft besides the F-18 in an upcoming airplane Geeks, there'll be more talking about more breadth of his career. But one of his aircrafts, his all his favorite aircraft to fly in was the EA-6 Intruder. Now, the advantage he said of the EA-6 Intruder was side-by-side seating. The F-111 is the same. The, one of the difficulty transitions you're going to have from the people flying 111s is you're not going to be able to work out your problems looking over next to the guy next to you. You're going to get the pair of eyes behind you. That's a learning curve that your 111 pilots are going to have to get over. You're not going to have someone sitting next to you that you can talk to face to face. You've got a guy riding behind you or or as we said in Vietnam Air Force parlance, a gib, guy in back. <laughs> yeah. So the really cool thing about the F111 too is that, you know, uh, if the crew have to eject in a 111, the whole cockpit is a pod and they just stay in it and it ejects the whole pod out of the aircraft and they parachute to safety. So that'll be something they'll have to get used to as well. Yeah, well, let's hope that most of our guys 
guys don't have the, have the privilege of ejecting. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, mate, and we really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us here. I'll have to go and find Grant in a minute. I don't know what's happened to him. What's up on the agenda? Uh, I guess, as you say, there's no more air shows uh, for this summer. No, we're, air show season's over. Oceana's usually one of the last of the year. Now, if I live down south in the States, the last air show for the Blue Angels is Pensacola, and that's the first weekend in November. But up until probably April of next year for Langley Air Force Base and the F-22 Raptors, I'm pretty much air show done. So next year we, we will be celebrating the 100th anniversary of naval aviation. So there will be a lot of high-vis aircraft, hopefully, and a lot of cool stuff. I'm sure the Blue Angels will do something special. We'll have Langley Andrews Air Force Base, which is one of the largest air shows. I will probably do Reading again, get some more Warbird stuff fixed. Hopefully, I've been told by my wife that we will be going, or I will be going to Oshkosh next year. We will, ha- and Atlantic City is always fun. That was a midweek show on the beach, and then Oceana. That's pretty much air show season, unless something spectacular comes up. But that'll be next year. And just that's be- 2011. And just before we go, mate, just tell the listeners uh, what you were observing from uh, the balcony of your apartment the other day. How many C5s and uh, how many C17s in the one spot? My my beloved wife wanted a beach day, so we drove down to Rehoboth, Delaware, but the road to Rehoboth from where I live in Philadelphia is right next to Dover Air Force Base. And I got to witness three C5s in the patterns doing touch and goes, accompanied by two C17s in the pattern, and then when as we got closer to the beach, I had a pair of C-17s doing follow my leader. It was a lot of heavy metal crossing the um, the skies of Dover. It was a reserve weekend, mm-hmm. but it's it's one of those places that you can't really describe to people watching three C-5s doing touch and goes. <laughs> it's not really what you expect the C-5 to be doing. That'd be amazing. We've got to get over there and do a field trip one day. We'll have to uh, plan that one, mate, but we really appreciate you joining us and we'll have to get you back uh, sooner rather than later. Hey, absolutely. I owe you guys some history lessons so yeah we'll be talking to you soon it's 473 delta runway 34 left please take off it's uh 761 contact director 161 take the 161 g'day controller's corner with benny polito hi welcome to the controller's corner the segment where we try to shed a little light on the world of air traffic control. First, I'd like to thank the listeners for their feedback in the forums. This segment will take a look at some questions that have been submitted by some listeners, in particular, Irk, Ed, and a big thanks to Turb, who has uh, given me many more episodes worth of questions. And for those listeners not aware, Turb's background is as a pilot for a major Australian air carrier. Firstly, a question from Turb about the monitoring and uh, predicting type of software that we have in place at the centre. We use a air traffic control platform called Eurocat. It's, as its name implies, also used in Europe and versions of it are also used in different countries around the world. And the original platform is used in Eurocontrol in Europe. The Eurocat software has a lot of alerts built into it. Some you would expect, like the CLAM alert, which stands for Cleared Level Adherence Monitor. This is important to ensure that pilots maintain their assigned levels. We also have other alerts, like the RAM, the Route Adherence Monitor, which ensures the pilots remain on their cleared flight plan track. RAM alerts are not used as policing tools, 
but to ensure that the separation standards that we base on keeping the aeroplanes apart still remain valid at all times. Our electronic flow control tool is called Maestro. Maestro uh, takes all the estimates for aircraft at the airport once they're approximately 70 minutes out and starts putting them into a sequence based on who will arrive at the airport first. Obviously, if more than one aircraft tries to land at a time, it picks a winner and then shares the delay amongst the remaining aircraft. It's not a perfect science, but it does make the job a lot easier by allowing you delay times to aircraft while they're still en route rather than have them in holding patterns at 100 miles out. Turbo also asked me a question of uh, if they should hand out prizes for being able to exactly meet your feeder fix time. The answer to that is simple. Your prize is being able to land in your slot time. This leads into another question about how the use of computers is changing the world of air traffic control. Air Services is currently looking at the next generation replacement for what was uh, acronymed TATS, which stands for the Advanced Australian Air Traffic System. This is the Eurocat platform I mentioned earlier. We're now looking for the next generation system to replace it, but TATS in itself was a major upgrade. It replaced the old system we had, which was radar sectors using radar scopes and being able to see the exact positions of the traffic and all the other sectors using what we used to call procedural boards. That's right, a 10-foot piece of wall covered with flight progress strips and the controllers working out the conflicts based on the times of passing and the crossing tracks that they knew of in the area. Needless to say, the procedural board had a few limitations, mainly that flex tracks or user-preferred routes would be very hard to implement based on the random nature of the tracks changing every day or sometimes for every flight. With the move to Eurocat, the procedural boards were done away with and all the estimates and tracking are now superimposed into a flight plan track which is the computer's estimate of where the aeroplane should be based on the estimates that you've given to it. Needless to say, if the controller inputs the wrong data or the pilot gives us a bad estimate, the old computing rule of garbage in, garbage out applies. This is where we have another alert called the ETO, estimated time over alert, which lets us know that the computer is telling us based on the flight planned true airspeed and the forecast of aloft winds, your estimate is out by more than three minutes please check it and try again. Another thing that comes with having computers and more modern technology is the backups. Let me assure you all, we have plenty of backups. The modern computing ability of the Eurocat platform allows us to assign any sector to any console in the whole entire control centre. This means that in the unlikely event that my console decides to take a hike, I can quickly move to a spare console and be up and running within minutes. Another major update that came with the move to the Eurocat platform was a move from the old push-button style intercom and frequency management system to a more modern system with the voice switching and control system. This is a little touchscreen panel that allows us access to all our frequencies for our sectors that we're controlling, the ability to merge and demerge sectors and split the frequencies out as we need to, and also contains all of our intercom functions. These are hotlines and cold lines to all our surrounding sectors. The difference between hotlines and cold lines is all in the name. A hotline is a simple push button and both microphones are hot and you're live straight away. A cold line is used where an instant answer is not required. 
and works more like an ordinary telephone system where I push the button and the controller pushes their button and answers when they are able to. At the back of all this is multiple redundancy with everything having at least one backup, if not two. Same also applies to all our communications links, which have at least two pathways, and in the busy sectors, three. With the process starting for the next generation system, we're all watching to see what happens with the next big step up into the next generation system, which promises to be a bigger generation change as the step up to TATS in the first place. Eric posted a question regarding superstitions. I'm not aware of any amongst the controllers. However, uh, I personally don't like to have any of the emergency handbooks out for too long, just in case any bad juju rubs off. And Ed sent in a question regarding our breaks, and in particular, what happens if you suddenly need to use the bathroom? Well, Ed, our breaks are generally well regulated. We normally have a system of being uh, plugged in for about an hour and then out for about half an hour before coming back in and the process repeats. In quieter times, you might be out for a bit longer depending on how many people you have on at the time and how busy the sector is. But even when you are on a break, you're always on standby to jump back in in case it gets busy or something happens and you need to split the airspace up to relieve the workload on the controller that's already in there. And in the unlikely event that you really have to get out, like now, then we can work around that and we can normally get somebody back into the room pretty fast who's actually signed off on the sector. Or in the worst case scenario, if it was an absolute emergency, I'm sure the person next door could watch the sector for the minute or so that you would be out of the room. But I've never heard of that happening thus far. Another question is, uh, are there any controllers who look or act like Billy Bob Thornton from uh, the movie Pushing Tin? I haven't seen anyone walk around with a feather in their uh, hair or with a fold-up chair. However, uh, there is one air traffic controller who was on my course, who works in Brisbane, who looks a little bit like Billy Bob, and the nickname Billy Bob in the Academy. Yes, Kevin, I'm talking to you. Keep pushing 10. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Controller's Corner. And once again, any comments, questions, complaints, queries can be either addressed to Steve and Grant at the PCDU podcast email or through the PCDU forums at downwind.com.au. And I'm also working on getting an email address. So I'll pass it on to Grant and Steve and they'll put that on the show notes for the podcast as well. Until next time, I'm ATC Ben and hope to see you in my sky. Whenever I board an international flight, I always look with longing at the pointy end of the plane and wonder what it's like to fly in a class other than cattle. It doesn't aid my flight status envy that when my parents fly to the UK, they use first class and the pictures taken show a world of luxury far removed from the sardine tin in the back. So, burning up a few points, I flew from Gatwick to Melbourne via Dubai in business class. And what a world of difference. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. All of the pampering began when a charming young help desk assistant completed all of the spooky voodoo booking system magic required to use existing points and the points I'd earned flying to Europe to upgrade my flight home. 
This was managed with great aplomb and professionalism considering I was baby wrangling my eight-month-old niece whilst my three-year-old niece was in the background stating with great determination that she wanted to watch Robbie the Reindeer over and over. Part of the deal includes a chauffeur-driven car to and from your respective departure and arrival airports. On the day of departure, I decided for the infrequent flyer to step outside and toast a Marlborough 15 minutes before the scheduled pickup time and blow me down, the car was already there. I went through the usual idiot actions of Anthony, checking my watch, apologising that I wasn't standing out the front, I'll go and grab my belongings, etc., to which the chauffeur replied with restrained British understatement, no worry, sir, we always arrive 15 minutes early. The driver good-naturedly stood by as the Clan Simmons bade their farewells with patting of heads and kissings of babies and mothers. He did seem slightly ruffled when, in the spirit of Australian egalitarianism, I chose to sit in the front passenger seat rather than the back. He quickly recovered his composure, we sallied forth, and enjoyable banter was exchanged. He apologised for the dismal weather... I apologised for the Australian cricket team, and in no time at all, I was deposited at the Emirates Terminal at Gatwick. Checking in, I was reminded that due to the upgrade, there was an extra 45-50 quid tax that needed to be paid before my ticket or boarding pass could be issued. My fears regarding Her Majesty's revenue being as sadistic and Stalinist as Her Majesty's customs and immigration were soon dispelled as a very jovial chap hoovered the MasterCard of the required sterling and with boarding pass and some duty-free in hand, I wandered off to the Emirates Business Class Lounge. Emirates don't stint on the comestibles in their lounges. Great selection of hot and cold dishes and a sensational range of wines to boot, all constantly being checked, rotated and restocked. The staff, yet again, were wonderful. No request was too difficult, trivial, stupid or weird. And you are treated like a king. They even anticipate your requirements. One sharp-eyed lass, seeing me with my laptop, charger and befuddled look on my dial, inquired as to the adapter I needed. And hey presto, 30 seconds later, I'm up and emailing with gusto. The staff member was of the dewy English rose variety and I would have been happy chatting to her for many more hours than we did. I think a candle still burns. After a very pleasant time and several New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, the flight was called and in due course we were invited to board the aircraft before the chattering classes milling about the departure gate. Settling into the comfortable and spacious seat, glass of bubbles in hand, I noticed a problem I never thought I would encounter. To deposit or extract my reading matter of choice from the seat pocket in front of me, I had to undo my seatbelt, stand up and take a pace forward to achieve this goal. Now that is space. The seat was a pod-like number that reclines to almost horizontal for sleeping. Upright you can chat to your neighbour or you can raise a partition and immerse yourself with young Frankenstein and a Bloody Mary. The cabin crew was every bit as helpful as the staff in the lounge. No request was too much bother, and if you weren't asleep, you needed to beat them off with a stick every 15 minutes as they inquired if you needed a pillow, something to eat, or refresh your drink. Usual response was no, not this time around, and yes please, the Chardonnay, thank you very much. As for the food, the same as the lounge. Lots and whenever you want it. I can recommend the cheese board and port whilst watching the band's The Last Waltz. I usually don't sleep much or that well when flying, and whilst the rest of the plane was in the land of Nod, the crew were more than happy for me to chat with them in the galley, asking ignorant questions about their jobs and such, career ambitions, what is Emirates like to work for, and saying, thanks ever so muchly, and could I please have some nuts every quarter of an hour. 
There's no need to go into the minutiae of the lounge in Dubai or the flight to Melbourne. The standard of service, presentation of the staff and crew, and the overall I'm a prince among men feeling was exactly the same. So the unanswered questions remain. Did I enjoy the experience? Definitely. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Do I recommend it? You betcha. Would I pay for it? Not a hope in hell. The experience is wonderful, but I couldn't justify the money, despite the fact that I can pay for it. So I'll stick to cattle class, use the points when I can, and look with longing to the pointy end of the plane. And that's the view from the lounge. Take a load off Annie. Take a load for free. I'd really do like the last notes. tell you what grant another full episode and uh boy some great content there once again yeah no definitely a lot of fun putting this one together and uh thanks again to david for uh letting us uh, have the the interview with the f-18 rhino pilot uh very much enjoyed that great to hear from david in fact it's been a good episode here because we've had uh, baz on who we haven't heard from for a while and uh david although david is uh, often working in the background to provide us with information and uh you know he knows a lot about military aircraft and, and history as well and uh, even though he hasn't made an appearance on the show for quite a few episodes now he's um you know he's, he's a great friend and uh, always willing to help us out whenever we need it yeah no, definitely very much appreciated and uh we hope to rectify that by bringing him on the show again pretty soon yep excellent what else have we got there grant that must be just about everything uh can you hear oh, yep. anybody coming i think i can hear that noise oh no that's that sound again ah, it's that dedicated postman mm, didn't even make the dog bark this time that's not bad it's a good thing it's yeah. a good thing Got some listener mail here, folks. Got some listener mail. We've had a little bit uh, and a bit of uh, a lot of participation in the forums. We actually haven't mentioned our forums lately, Grant, on uh, downwind.com.au. But, folks, uh, don't forget to drop over there and uh, have a look at uh, all the wonderful things on the downwind.com.au site. And, of course, our forum is there and there's a lot of threads there. We put out a new – every time we put out a new episode, we uh, we start a new thread there if you want to get in and comment on it. Uh, that's one of the many ways you can do it. And uh, we always encourage participation in the show and let us know what we're doing right and let us know what we're doing, well, not so right. <coughs> yes, yeah, and uh, you know we don't profess to know everything here, so uh, set us straight if you think we've got something wrong. Yeah, yeah, we we need to hear that, and that helps us uh, improve the show for you. Okay, Grant, I've got a quick one here from uh, Cameron Libberts over there in Adelaide. Uh, you know, keeping in the Adelaide theme since we've had Baz on from Adelaide. There tonight. you go. Yeah, nice, nice, nice uh, linkage. Yep, Cameron sent us a few emails in the past. He loves to get out there and uh, do a bit of plane spotting at uh, Adelaide International and uh, take some pretty good photos too. I might tell you. Cool. Uh, just uh, saying here that he's just listened to episode forty-two. Uh, hello, guys. Guys, it's Cameron here from Adelaide. Just finished episode forty-two and enjoyed the cockpit audio. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty good. Yeah, uh, I wonder, Grant, just on that cockpit audio, uh, if, if everybody picked up what it was that that F one eleven had done. It had actually um, apparently ingested a bird. Yeah, I think was it a bird strike or was it in the engine? Um, I can't remember if it was a fuselage pit or uh, taken out one of the engines. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah, I'm not sure, but pity that we couldn't hear the other side of that conversation. But I thought the uh, the professionalism of that controller just all of a sudden, yep, no problem, anything you need mate and uh, got him cleared into Amberley straight away and uh, great stuff great great cockpit audio so uh, yeah Cameron uh, thanks for sending in that email and uh, all the best as uh, we approach our 50th episode he says so uh, thanks mate we're working towards that we uh, you know if we, we got these shows out a bit more often we'd probably be past episode 50 by now but <coughs> yeah well you know there is always that curse those day jobs I know reality gets in the way of my fun all the time <laughs> 
Okay, now uh, just moving on here and Grant talking about our forums and one of our biggest supporters on this show is a gentleman who uh, goes by the uh, handle of Turb. Yeah, as in Turb Coriolis. Turb, Turb Coriolis uh, and, and their website, or his website in fact is uh, juniorfly.com. That's a, a wonderful website. Uh, get over there folks if you've got young kids and you're going flying uh, and you think they might be a little bit nervous or you just need to keep them occupied so that they're on, on one of those uh, flights, you know, they're not bothering everybody else and particularly you. Um, <laughs> yeah, luck. Turb's got some great, uh, you, know, you can print out uh, uh, print out pages there for them to colour in and it's very aviation themed and uh, it's wonderful stuff too. is a huge huge supporter of our show here just talking about uh, the episode 43 uh, back to the air show thread uh, Grant that we put there in the forums. Yeah that's right he was uh, just finished listening to episode 43 which as most of you would remember was our, uh, our show about the Melton Centenary Air Show and uh, yeah he was saying that uh, it represents what one of the things he really likes about uh, playing Crazy Down Under which is capturing people's stories Stories. He said the interviews were great, really enjoyed the one with air traffic control. Although he notes that he, he's a, he'd probably be a bit concerned if he knew he was being controlled by a guy called Filthy. Uh, well, i good that, news for you, Turb. There's probably a fair chance you have been in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, although, as per some of our more recent chats with Phil, um, he's he's more in the safety section now rather than the uh, operational day-to-day air traffic control. But he says uh, the whole day sounded like a masterpiece of air traffic control, and it definitely was. Uh, of course, the guys there on the top of that makeshift tower were being coordinators in Unicom. They weren't officially air traffic controllers, but they were doing the, the very difficult task of coordinating between uh, what was required of the air show and uh, Melbourne International Airport and so on, as well as the people coming in and out of the airport outside the time of the air show. As he points out here, he thinks it was great that uh, we got Glenn uh, to talk about uh, the event sponsors. He acknowledges that it is uh, vital for the ongoing support of aviation events that the sponsors are recognised so that they get value for money. So, yeah, glad that we were able to help that. And, yeah, sorry, Turb, that you weren't there. Maybe, uh, well... Maybe the bicentennial? Yeah, I hope I'm there too. So uh, once again, thanks to Turb. Now, of course, we know who Turb uh, is in real life. We know who he is, but, uh, you know, we uh, would like to keep his keep that confidential. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, just to let you know, mate, that we really do appreciate the, the massive support you give to us here in this show, um, you know, from an information standpoint and uh, from a yeah, from a bit of moral support too. Uh, it's, it's it's really great, mate, really appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's people like Turb that uh, just make us want to keep going on with this show and uh, building this uh, this community of aviators and interested parties it's uh, it's it's just a, a cool thing about new media ground I, I know i keep banging on about it but it's it's really true isn't it <laughs> yeah no it is great the people we've met and the opportunities we've had and uh, and the feedback we get and uh, you know some feedback isn't always perfect it's not always stoking us up but even when it's uh, telling us hey you know you're not quite right here that helps and an example of that was an email we got from anthony crichton brown who's who generally likes what we're doing but had a couple of things that he wasn't quite 100% online with, was he, Steve? Oh, that's right, but that's that's cool. Um, Anthony wrote into us. Now, Anthony says here that he uh, works for Qantas and is a uh, 767 pilot. Cool. Uh, so, you know, once again, it's really a thrill that we've got pilots of uh, Anthony's calibre listening to the show. He's just saying that he enjoys the podcast, and in fact, he makes one of his own, which we'll talk about in a moment, because uh, I've listened to all three episodes of those, and uh, they are fantastic. Yeah, Anthony's got some uh, some interesting views here on the uh, the state of the uh, the aviation industry in Australia, uh, talking about, um, you know, the, the attitude of, uh, I guess, some of the old guard and, and, 
and how Australia's, um, I guess, along a common theme of what we were talking there with Baz about it being uh, overregulated at times and a, a little bit old-fashioned in, in the way you know, the training scheme is set up and uh, and all this sort of stuff, where it's it's more geared at perhaps making money for Air Services Australia and CASA and, and perhaps flying schools than it is about uh, you know benefiting uh, you know the bloke flying the plane. Well, uh, well I'll, say, I'll say one thing, and that is if, if it's benefiting the flying schools, I know a lot of them would be going, please, more. <laughs> There's a lot of flying schools hurting out there at the moment. Yeah, we had some uh, a couple of emails backwards and forwards with Anthony and uh, talking about um, you know some of my views, which uh, went along with his in that regard. Uh, he's saying here in a supplementary email that uh, <laughs> he says, I don't always agree with uh, everything you say on the podcast, mainly about the state of the airlines and uh, some pieces of operations, but that's okay. It's all part of the fun of open discussion in a free country. Uh, <laughs> and he says here, uh, Grant, he says, uh, unlike Ben Sanderlands, uh, I don't believe that Qantas will be uh, dumping mainline and uh, putting A380s in Jetstar colours. And uh, i got to say, Anthony, and I actually said this back to you in an email, I agree with that sentiment. I, uh, an interesting point of discussion from uh, Ben, and um, I, I don't know that I agree with that, that assessment. <laughs> oh, you either. go along with it because I'm, I'm the loony who does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still reckon we're going to see an A380 flying Jetstar colours. It wouldn't surprise me to see it. It won't be in the next few years, but it wouldn't surprise me if we see it along, along the track. I would be staggered if that happened. But uh, anyway, that's like you say, that's that's all part of the, uh, the the discussion, uh, you know, the discussion things. Anthony also thinks that the uh, the long-term look for Qantas Mainline is a bit more upbeat than uh, perhaps is portrayed in the media. So if that's the case, and let's face it, he would know. Well, you know, that's a positive thing. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly don't want to see the flying kangaroo go away. And I'm a believer that it won't. Um, you know, we, we sort of take the view that it seems to us from, from looking from the outside in that everything that's new that's coming on to the Qantas group seems to be geared at the low-cost carrier side of things for whatever reason, right or wrong. And some Sometimes, uh, you know, that, that can be to the detriment of, of mainline Qantas pilots. So I guess it wouldn't happen, but it'd be nice to see a bit more of an integrated strategy there. Um, and, you know, perhaps we're even seeing that with uh, Jetstar and Qantas flying, uh, you know, a lot of a uh, lot of the same routes now these days. So, you know, maybe there is some scope for that to happen and hopefully yeah. it'll be a benefit for everybody. Yeah, it's the, it's settling out and we're seeing some interesting developments. There are a few new things coming in in the, in the mainline area, but, yeah, most of the activity and the, the growth really does seem to be happening in JQ. It's always giving us something to talk about and that's what's really good. Now, one more thing Anthony uh, said here at the bottom of one of his emails was that um, his, his actual passion is for aerobatics. I can agree with that. Yep. And he said he's just taken leave of his senses, that's his words, not mine, and bought a pit special. Woohoo! So uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, The only thing that would be more awesome, uh, Anthony, is if you flew it down here to Turret and let us have a look at it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he just wanted to uh, point out here too that uh, recently uh, in the last uh, week or so, there's been some sad news in the aerobatics world with Mm. the uh, the death of the uh, world aerobatic champion uh, Renard Ical. Yeah, that's right. I certainly hope I pronounced that name properly. Uh, he was killed in a light aircraft uh, accident recently, along with his wife and two kids, uh, and they were actually flying home from from an air display when that happened. So that's uh, that's massively sad news, Grant. And uh, if you want to know why uh, why he was such a uh, an awesome aviator, um, well, Anthony's included a YouTube link here, and we'll pop that in the show notes, Grant. And uh, have a look at that uh, video, folks. It <laughs> that is some of the most amazing flying I've ever seen. So um, that's that's a really bit of sad news. And like he says here, sorry to end on a sad note. Uh, but the aviation community should know what a brilliant pilot he was and honour his memory. Well, um, absolutely. So, uh, Anthony, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Thanks for participating in the show. We really appreciate it, mate. And that brings us on to Anthony Crichton-Brown's Flying Ant Online podcast. Uh Uh-huh. The man's a podcaster as well. Yep, and uh, he's an excellent podcaster. He's put three shows out, and Anthony's got two websites. Uh, One is Flying Ant 
That's flyingantonline.com. And the other one is flyingantonline.blogspot.com. Uh, now, the first of those links takes you to his podcast. Uh, he's put three out. And the last one that I listened to covers the uh, the recent Australian Aerobatics uh, Championships. Oh, cool. And uh, he's got some wonderful interviews there with um, with uh, some pilots, with some judges and organisers, and uh, including David Pilkington, who's a local down here at Moorabbin. Yeah. Uh, Grant, I've, I've spoken to David a few times. Uh, he actually owns a decathlon. Actually, the last time I spoke to him, he owned a decathlon, a uh, yellow and white one. So, um yeah, interesting stuff. I think he was actually up there in the capacity as a judge. I actually was flying around to Albury and back in a DC-3 with his brother, Mark, who's in the um, museum that I'm a member of. Yeah, Grant, the other two um, the other two podcasts he's got there is uh, one where he's talking to uh, Gary Criddle uh, from Combat Dragon. Uh, they fly the, uh, the A36, uh, I think it is, the Dragonfly up there in uh, Sydney. And uh, also his first uh, podcast which was recorded back in January of this year is with a, uh, a Canadian gentleman who's uh, by the name of Rob Weberbauer. Uh, have a listen to that one folks. Rob is a uh, Canadian uh, he flies for Qantas now but he is an ex uh, Royal Canadian Air Force uh, pilot and has uh, flown uh, everything from fast jets through to uh, Orions and um, yeah oh, awesome. that was a really fascinating interview. Really well produced and I highly recommend that everybody gets along and has a listen to that. So that's uh, flyingantonline.com. Well I would be able to say that I've listened to all three of those episodes but uh, unfortunately I haven't quite got to them yet because I'm finishing off the episodes of another podcast that we're going to give a shout out to here which is the Flaps podcast out of the UK and I got to say I'm loving it I'm uh, just starting into the third podcast they've done they too have done three episodes so far and guys you have to go and check this one out the Flaps podcast from the UK yeah Max Flight mentioned this in episode I think it was 116 of the Airplane Geek show and so uh, we uh, jumped immediately across and downloaded uh, at that time, only the, uh, they had two episodes out, and they've put a third one out since. These guys are obviously, uh, obviously radio guys. The production of this podcast is so slick; it's just wonderful. It's uh, fast paced; it moves really well. They only go for about half an hour per show, but really humorous and really well presented. So that's uh, flapspodcast.com. And uh, great to see another UK-based uh, yep. aviation podcast. Of course, we've got Steve Cook's Flying Podcast, which is, uh, I'll tell you what, he's getting some wonderful interviews too over there at uh, Flying Podcast. So, uh, Yeah, more, more UK content is always good, mate. So that's about, about everything from me from the shout-out side of things. Grant, you got any there? Yeah, mate, I've got a couple of shout-outs, uh, especially one to Andrew Offen. Uh, while I was up at the Gold Coast area uh, in Tweed Heads with my family the other week, Andrew uh, dropped me an email and said, hey, I noticed you're up here. Uh, meet you at Gold Coast and we'll go for a fly. He's based out of Archerfield in Brisbane, and he flies a uh, Cirrus SR22. That was the first Cirrus in Australia to be upgraded to the uh, Avidyne Release 9 package. So uh, he flew down to the Gold Coast, and we met him there and jumped on board and he ran me through all the screens and all the systems and we went for a bit of a jolly uh flew north up towards brisbane up around north stradbroke island and so and uh, just really enjoyed the view and the aircraft and the flying and getting to meet andrew it was great I had a really good time uh went coastal up the beach uh up towards the north and then came back on slightly more inland and yeah had a really really good flight uh really enjoyed our time nikolai loved it of course he, he loves being up flying and thought the cirrus was really cool and uh yeah it was it was really great um, absolutely wonderful of Andrew to offer us that uh, opportunity to go for a fly he, he loves taking people for a fly and reckons he's always looking for someone to just go up and enjoy some time in the air with so uh, yeah really appreciate that Andrew thank you very much and we did record some cockpit audio on that one and uh, when I get a chance I'll go through and edit that up and we'll include it in a future episode and uh, we'd also like to thank Andrew Andrew who's also uh, supported us a couple of times with donations mate uh, really seriously appreciated uh, that's, that's really generous of you mate and uh, offering grant 
a flight, that's even better. So yeah, yeah just offer me a flight anytime you like, and we, we can all stay <laughs> friends. Well, I think you got to get up north first, mate. And uh, you got one more there too, Grant. That's right. I've got one more on my list, which is a big shout out to Brendan Vitti. Brendan and I went flying a while back out of Essendon. And uh, Brendan's announced he's now going for his IFR. Dude. Awesome. That. Yeah, Grant, I remember when I got my IFR rating uh, way, way back in about 1991. And uh, as the uh, the check ride instructor there uh, handed me my uh, my ticket and my endorsement, he said, okay, he said, now this is where you really learn to fly. Yeah. Um, and it really is too. I, I think um, instrument, uh, instrument rating should be mandatory training, really. There's the aspect which is that like in the US, you get a bit of night and you get a bit of instrument. And that's supposed to make you a bit safer if you accidentally wind up flying a bit too late or accidentally wind up going into a cloud or well in the US you can actually fly with your your night um you can fly at night with your private pilot's rating, but um, I always thought it was more more supposed to be just in case you accidentally were uh, flying at night because there's quite a number of cases of people who go flying at night or who think, well, I can fly on instruments and they turn themselves into a statistic. Yeah, well, of course, there is the, the classic case of, uh, you know, um, you know what they often call in the US Air Force a sucker hole, you know, it, uh, mm-hmm. it's caught more than one pilot, uh, there's a hole in the clouds, up you go and it closes up underneath you and now what do you do? So, uh, you know, that basic uh, in, your, um, in your PPL training is all about... At, uh, just teaching you to uh, get a scan going of your instruments and to uh, ignore what your head, what your body's telling you, and just trust those instruments and making sure you keep that scan going. I remember when I was doing mine, that was what they plugged the whole time: scan, 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 left, right, up, down, left, right, up, down, and uh, not to fixate on one instrument and just ignore those sensations that your body's telling you. Know, I really am in a bank when, in actual fact, you're straight and level. You know, so it's uh, it's really um, you know when you when you first start doing it, it's very disconcerting and it takes a long time to you know for some. Uh, it, it, yeah. it, it did take me quite a quite a while before I got used to uh, you know just overriding what my body was telling me and uh, <laughs> believe what my eyes were telling me which was that uh, you know everything's cool just keep with it so uh, yeah so uh, uh, good luck with that Brendan and uh, let us know how you go with that yeah we'll have to get him on the show for a chat it was great having a flight with him out to from Essendon to Turidan and back a while ago and uh, yeah no it'd be, be good to keep in touch with him and see how he's going with that because I mean hey you know my, my idea of flying is is more like Baz with the smaller aircraft or although I prefer aerobatics and, and biplanes but uh, yeah, you know, I always thought IFR meant I follow roads. So, <laughs> oh well. I could tell you briefly about the first. Uh, I got my ticket, and um, actually, where I was, I did my uh, my check ride at a place called Pine Bluff, which uh, for those Americans who live around that area would know, that's sort of in uh, South Central Arkansas. Did my rating down there, and actually filed IFR for the uh, forty minute flight back to Heber Springs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the first long cross country IFR I did after I got my rating was uh, from um, Central Arkansas, where I was living, and we went up to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, with one stop and it was IMC uh, memory serves about a four hour flight maybe a five hour flight even with a stop for fuel and uh, we were IMC or VFR on top at least for most of that flight and uh, I can tell you when you pop out of the clouds the ceiling this day uh, when we landed at uh, Dayton International Airport it was Dayton we went to. What a feeling of absolute satisfaction when you pop out of the clouds and you're right there on the centre line. You got the, you can see the strobes going away from you. And um, I can tell you, uh, as a young pilot, I was only 20 years old at that time. I think you feel absolutely bulletproof. So <laughs> it was it was a great feeling. So um, it's uh, I tell you what, I slept well that night. It's, uh, it takes a lot of concentration when you're hand flying a Cessna 172 for so many hours in uh, those sort of conditions. But uh, very satisfying. I wonder if I'd have the courage to do that now since I've been out of the game for a while. Well, it's it's called getting current again mate you you know get yourself back up to vfr state and then go off and 
get your get your uh, instrument current again. Yeah. Well, as I uh, mentioned uh, off air before, Grant, uh, that might have a lot to do with that lotto win I'm planning this week. Ah, yes, your cunning plan to win lotto. Mate, I've been trying that one for a year. I've had a cunning plan to win the lotto for the last year or two. Yeah, well, back off, pal. It's my turn next. Yeah, well, as evidenced by my lack of appearance at Oshkosh, I still haven't won yet. Well, anyway, folks, we might just uh, wrap it up there. Now, we've got uh, three more of the uh, Red Bull Air Race season wraps coming up in future episodes. Uh, Matt Hall, as we mentioned before, we've got one with Nigel Lamb and the uh, very popular Canadian pilot, Pete McLeod. Don't forget, folks, you can also hear us on the Airplane Geeks show with our uh, Australia Desk Report. We do one of those every week, unlike playing crazy down under. We uh, do that one every week. Uh, We're also on Flight Time Radio, about every second or third episode of that one. Uh, We do one of our flying down under segments. You know, I, I hope that Milford and Charlie over there can actually understand what we're saying through our accents because they are uh, very southern. They do have quite uh, pronounced southern uh, American accents over there, don't they, mate? Yeah, but, you know, we're southerners as well, and I think us southerners, we stick together, mate. Well, that's what we always say. We're from the southern hemisphere, so <laughs> we've got the real southern accents. And we're from the southern part of Australia, too. There you go. So, uh, folks, uh, there's also another way that you can access the show now, and uh, this is probably more for our European and uh, US listeners where they have wonderful amounts of bandwidth with all over the place, unlike this country. Uh, but you can get us on a service now called Stitcher.com. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R.com. That is a service that allows you to stream our show directly to your iPhone or to your BlackBerry. So uh, that's uh, another way that you can access it. So uh, just go on there to uh, Stitcher.com. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. And, um, yeah, that's uh, another way that you can access the show. And if you do, folks, if you can just let us know, um, it's actually quite interesting with Stitcher. The Airplane Geeks um, submitted their feed to it. And uh, somehow or other, I think, in that uh, we got picked up as well. Um, so we actually haven't uh, set up an account where we can track the usage of that yet, but if you could provide us with some feedback uh, through our email address, which is, uh, of course, playing crazy down under at gmail.com, we're very happy that they've included us in their feed and uh, we'd be interested to know how many of you uh, would give it a go and um, what the audio quality is like. So we'll leave it there. We know it's been a marathon this time. In fact, I think this is probably going to be end up being the uh, longest podcast that we've done so far, but there's been so much great content this week uh, that we really wanted to get it out and uh, even as we work our way towards 50, we don't want to be uh, making the episode shorter just to achieve that goal. So uh, a big thanks to Bear Sheffers for joining us again. A huge thanks to David Van Hoof and of course to Hannah Sark. Also to Ben Ippolito for sending in another Controller's Corner. Anthony Simmons as always and most of all, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the program. We really appreciate your support folks. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under but in the meantime just remember this. It's what's down under that counts folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. 
We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. All right, by doing something completely different that wasn't mentioned on that list. Which was what? Oh, we're just going to have a chat. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Did we mention that in the list? I thought, anyhow. Sorry, my mistake if I missed it. What are you talking about? I didn't really hear it either. Yeah. You mentioned oh. Hannah Sark, you mentioned all sorts of other things, and it was like, cool, let's do something completely different. <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad, I reckon it's great. Yeah, no, that's good. We can keep we can keep that comment in and just pick it up from there. Yeah. Force and done uh, charter in uh, freight in heavies uh, all over the world and lots of trouble spots. And I think someone just started printing. You can probably hear that. I think we, yeah, just starting to hear it in the background. Yeah. All right. I'll uh, we'll probably wait till that. Uh, no <laughs> well, there's a there's a blooper. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey he's flying jet jocks. He's been with the USAF. He's done all this and he's printing right now. Bugger. It's not a printer, it was a jet engine. Yeah. <laughs> I just said he's hooked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, God, I didn't even think of that. Oh, oh ow. So I, I haven't got the soundboard running. I should have, shouldn't I? Oh, yep. you can splice it in later. Oh, I'm sorry, guys, I didn't even think of that. No, that makes, a, that makes one for the blue reel. I'm happy with that. Uh, one of many. <laughs> so these missions that the, the Growler would perform, I believe uh, in the States, um, the Air Force there calls them wild weasel missions. Is that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll edit um, that out then. <laughs> no, actually. Well, uh, let, Steve, let, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase it. Rephrase it. No, 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 no. It, you, it's a good conversation. Don't, don't edit this out. Let, right. Let's talk. One of the uh, one of the really cool things that I always uh, always struck me about the one eleven was that um, oh, excuse me here, David, I'm just being fed some prize winning chocolate fudge. Would you like some? Oh, absolutely. Well, that gives me time to pop my soda. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say say hello to Kathy. I'll just turn turn up your mic, Kathy. Say say, say hello into that microphone. Hello. Hi, Kathy. Greetings from Pennsylvania. Ah, how are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. When are you going to start? When are you going to start exporting some of that prize-winning food up here? Mm. Do you think there's any chance of anything mm. getting out the front door? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, well, I know that that's not going to happen. I'm hoping you'll smuggle it. You'll smuggle some for me. No, no chance. What was I talking about again? Oh, this has got nope. che- this has it's like a, a, a cherry cherry chocolate bar. She she puts these in these brownies. Uh, oh, fudge. Mm, what were we talking about again, mate? Uh, F one eleven. Oh right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll let you get back to it now. Oh, that's okay. I've got a, I've got them record. I've recorded this, so <laughs> yeah. it'll be used for blackmail purposes later. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, actually, she's actually made this as a birthday present for one of our friends, but I think she's going to have to make some more. <laughs> 